Hello, beautiful listeners. It's Rob with Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. We know you love the stories we tell, and we love telling them. However, producing and hosting the podcast is not free, but there's a way you can help. Find us on Patreon. Our Patreon members get access to exclusive content, early episode releases, and all other sorts of goodies. Go to www.patreon.com slash trrpod for as little as a buck a month. Every cent we take in goes back to making the show bigger and better. Thank you, we love you, and as always, hold fast and enjoy the show. So I think we dropped the ball a little bit on the last episode, because we were talking about how much, and in the last couple episodes, we because... We were talking so much about how Rasputin liked to hug and kiss women, and women would sit on his lap and stuff, but he, he, it was just like, oh, I'm just being me. It, I think he missed his big defense, which is... Well, he, are you sure? Could he have been one of your relatives, Chris? Yeah. He's I just know, Italian. I know where this is going, and I'm just not, I'm not going to... You're not going to gratify it with a response? I'm not going to acknowledge this. As much as we <laughs> liked making fun of that man? It's not... It's not a sexual assault. Uh, I, I'm Italian. I can't believe he, he said audience. that with a straight fucking face, too. Yeah. Well, uh, like, that's the, it, it's the it's the Kevin Spacey thing. Like, yeah, okay, it was an underage boy that I groomed for a long time, and then I, you know, threatened him. Oh, uh, by the yeah. way, now I'm gay. Uh, oh, but but I'm gay, and then the gay community is like, absolutely not. <laughs> no. Yeah, that don't tried to hide behind the rainbow like Cuomo tried to hide behind the fucking lasagna. Absolutely not. <laughs> oh, speaking of things turning 18, a very happy 18th anniversary to the uh, Dave Matthews Band tour bus poop incident. Yes, oh, we God. did. Yeah. I would still rather be covered in his shit than listen to his stupid, boring-ass music. Yeah, I can't Ooh, cooking it. up hot takes in the kitchen today. Uh, oh. Can't do it. I actually... He's uh, if the Clarks were from South Africa. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> who's who's <laughs> ready for some safe fun? So, in the first... 35 seconds, we've lost Bloomfield, <laughs> the rest of Pittsburgh, Mom, and Mom, everybody Mom. I went to middle school with. Yep. Everybody that, that still wears the same white Abercrombie hat that they bought in 1999. <laughs> so my um, my Dave Matthews story is I used to live in Lynchburg, Virginia, and mm-hmm. I knew a guy that was a pro- professional musician there. And the saxophone player, known as Leroy Moore, who's since passed away. I was going to say he passed away, correct? Yeah, he passed away, ATV accident, unfortunate, rest in peace, you know. That said, he came into town one time, and everybody was referring to him as Leroy. And my buddy Lou looks up at him and says, Leroy? Shit. I remember when you were Leroy. (laughs) (laughs) Damn. Just proof that every, just, that Dave Matthews Band makes everything whiter. Yeah. Except the tour bus. <laughs> and, and, and the boat. It was the boat. The, the tour bus, really. I assume, was fine. If not better. <laughs> yeah. It had gravity on its right. side. It was lighter. <laughs> so, speaking of... Wasn't uh, that Chicago? Uh, yes, yeah, that was Chicago, Chicago River. Yeah. And, well, speaking of a bunch of dudes who gravity is actually taking a toll on, it's four of us here. This is Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. I'm Rob North. I am your co-host, Chris Miller. I am the Padre, Michael Lernet. And I am Kyle Graper. Uh, unfortunately, we are not joined by Keith Volhop today. He, uh, he had a little COVID exposure at work, and he's... Decided to act with an abundance of caution to keep us all safe. So he has thank a you, wedding Keith. in Germany. <laughs> hey, I did have I somebody like ask, two days. I did have somebody ask me if Kyle's at a wedding in Germany was code for you had COVID, and I was like, no, 
one of us has COVID, we're just going to yeah, say Yeah, we it. just said it in the past. Yeah. Like we, we, I talk about my bleeding bowels all the time. I wouldn't hide a COVID diagnosis. <laughs> we're, no. we're, we're not, we're not uh, you know, stopping here. This is not where, this is not the line in the sand. But uh, yeah, so unfortunately, Keith is not here today. Keith Volhop from the Thrifty Whiskey YouTube channel, who has been the, I would say, the inspiration for us doing this series. True, I mean, yeah, this, this was this Keith's idea. It was, and uh, but he gave us the go-ahead to, to keep going with it, and he's going to join us for the last part. And we're going to get his thoughts on what we're going to talk about today when he's here next time. Also, but he has been kind of the voice of reason. He really has. Um, it's kind of nice, because normally I have to be, and that shit's exhausting <laughs> with you fuckers. It hasn't been me. No, it's... Or me. So don't, don't look at me. I'm Italian. <laughs> <laughs> Stop hugging and kissing everybody. Are we now officially referring to that as the lasagna defense? <laughs> so we are on to part five in our series on Grigory Yefimovich Rasputin. And in this part, we're going to take a bit of a deep dive into the most hedonistic and confusing period of Rasputin's life, where... He maintained his position at the heart of the imperial Russian power structure, essential to the royals thanks to their big dynastic secret, but much to the consternation and confusion of just about everybody else. Now we're going to talk about how Rasputin managed to piss off just about everyone with any sort of power and influence in Russia at the time. <clears throat> and, But at the same time, he managed to wield more political influence than ever, being a permanent fixture at every big society event, especially the ones he wasn't invited to or was told to stay away from and beginning to shape the Russian leadership now at a greater tipping point than it had experienced in centuries in his own image and to his own design. Now, some figures from Rasputin's past would come back to haunt him, and he would surround himself with a whole new coterie of mysterious and weird figures at a time when not just Russia was sitting on a massive existential time bomb, but the very world was itself. Now, the old order that Rasputin had managed to infiltrate was now under threat, not just from an increasingly anxious and angry populace, but from an outbreak of chaos and slaughter that would send tens of millions to their graves under a blizzard of steel and mud. In the middle of what would be none other than Ras and in the middle of that would be none other than Rasputin himself, a mad monk growing seemingly madder in the face of a hostile press, a vengeful aristocracy, and the consequences of his own machinations. Now this episode is by necessity going to be something of an incomplete picture of the time period through about the middle of 1915. Because if we covered every incident that involved Rasputin, even the just the significant ones, we'd be here recording for days. Now, our goal here is to tell some stories that illustrate just how strange and out there his behavior was, and how he would go on to affect the Russian power dynamics of the time. Uh, we recommend that if you want a fuller picture of more incidents from his weird and outrageous behavior, that you read the source material. Especially our two primary sources, which contain tons of stories about what he got up to and how the Russian power structure handled it. Those sources are... Of course, the fantastic Rasputin, Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs by Douglas Smith, Rasputin, The Untold Story by Joseph Fuhrman, Nicholas and Alexandra, The Fall of the Romanov Dynasty by Robert Massey, Nicholas II, The Last of the Tsars by Marc Ferreau, and of course, a uh, big help from Dr. Alyssa Klotz from the University of Pittsburgh, Dr. Janie Burns from Point Park University, Dr. Erica Haber from Syracuse University, and Dr. Michael Nyberg from the U.S. Army War College. And, like I said, we normally don't like to use podcasts as sources but use please 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 if you haven't go and listen to the countdown to armageddon series that dan carlin has done for his podcast uh hardcore history it's that doesn't great... count as a podcast that's like a book yeah, yeah it's, it's it's a text yeah, it's, it's yeah. a it's a 
it's the most thorough storytelling breakdown of the First World War I've ever seen in It's in like 19 form. hours. Yeah, six parts. It's 19, more than 19 hours, more than, maybe more than 20 in total. It is, a tri- it is a creative triumph. It is insanely good. And if you want to, you know, if you have a long commute, if you have just... If you're just interested about the First World War. If you got 20 hours to kill, go for it. Yeah, if you're going to be sitting on a beach for a long time. But yeah, if you're Keith, just... In, you got yeah. five days to kill. If you're just Potentially, interested in the we, First Keith World Potentially, could be fine. an abundance yeah. of yeah. caution. Yeah. Or maybe he just didn't feel like driving up here, and I get it. This is true. Yeah. Maybe he's had enough. <laughs> I get it. I get sick of us, too. I, I get it. He's sitting there going, fuck the, him, kids. The dog's actually been kind of okay this time. <laughs> But yeah, if you if you're interested at all in World War One, definitely listen to Countdown to Armageddon. It's insanely good. So, gentlemen, any points of order before we get down to the story? Uh, while we are talking about um, triumphs, uh, like creative triumphs and writers, uh, I feel like we should take a moment to uh, appreciate David McCullough. Yes, Pittsburgh's yes, yeah. Pulitzer Prize Absolutely. winner. Uh, yeah. The 16th Street Bridge was renamed to the David McCullough Bridge. Uh, tragically passed today. Uh, yeah. Yeah, early this morning. Uh, I think McCall is probably the reason why I'm as passionate about history as I am. Mm-hmm. Because, man, that dude writes one hell of a book. Yeah. yeah David McCullough has made a made up a large part of my, my library for a long time. Oh, yeah. He's I, a, he, he was a fantastic historical nonfiction author. And if you're interested in American history at all, chances are you've read David McCullough at some point. And he did the city of Pittsburgh very, very proud yes. with what he put out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, and he sure did. did. Everybody who is interested in history, I think, owes him owes him a great debt. One of the so. things I really liked about his writing was that he he novelized without. Um, I mean, you see, when you, a lot of times when you he read novelized history, without dramatizing, things. right, right, right. It was it was still very very accurate to the facts, but it was good storytelling. Correct. Yeah, yeah I mean, we have like look at the John Adams series on HBO. It's John oh, Adams. absolutely, yeah. Uh, his his book on the Johnstown flood, the, yeah. the first Johnstown flood, tremendous, his, his, tremendous. His book on uh, the the first year of the American Revolution, seventeen seventy six, is some of the be- so good. It won a Pulitzer Prize, yeah, right. So and for a damn good reason. And I think Adams did too. I mm-hmm. believe I believe John Adams yeah. did as well. multiple Pulitzer Prize winning author. Yeah. So yeah, Mr. McCullough, this goes. Uh, out I to wanted you. to wanted to Rest take a moment buddy. to get to get that in everybody's mind before we begin. So as the nineteen tens dawned. Gregory Rasputin was sitting pretty, ensconced at the right hand of Tsar Nicholas II and his wife, the Tsarina Alexandra, as their primary spiritual advisor and someone who had the seemingly miraculous ability to heal their hemophiliac son and heir to the throne Alexei. But now he, that he was one of the most powerful and influential people in Russia, Rasputin was pulling back into some of the old bad habits from his past before his religious experience that put him on the path to righteousness. Now, Rasputin had never stopped being something of a lecherous individual. He was handsy and crabby in all the wrong ways, and very open with flirtatious and sometimes overtly sexual language that he would use when talking to noble women and ladies of the court. Now, in St. Petersburg, he would frequent sex workers and houses of ill repute, which were doing a booming trade in the capital at the time, and would frequent bathhouses, cabarets, ballet studios, and the city's many dozens of brothels, basically anywhere where things were a little more libertine let's say. And we can be almost certain, as we discussed in the last episode, that he had affairs with noble women at some point, but that he never, for several reasons, had sexual relations with the Tsarina. However, another vice was competing for room alongside his sexual proclivities, and that was the booze. Rasputin had been on the wagon for a pretty long time, since about 1897, but by the 1910s, 
He had fallen back into the rich pleasures of life among the aristocracy, and that included free-flowing wine, vodka, and other intoxicants. Now, He's Rasputin, a big brandy drinker, which, like, among the aristocracy yeah. is not, not uncommon. Like, whenever you see all these people that are just, like, riddled with gout, yeah. it's because they're just, like, crushing brandy. For the most part, Rasputin's mm. not paying for it. Uh, yeah, and that's the thing. It was just free. There's no brandy quite so delicious as someone else's brandy. It was, uh, I mean, on the, that works for Rasputin on many different levels. Yes. <laughs> Depends on who Brandy is. Mm, uh, yeah. <laughs> what but, a good wife she would be. But that was the same as... Uh, I was going there, too. It's like Franklin. Like Ben Franklin was mm-hmm. so riddled with gout because of all the free Brandy. He was just, just <laughs> hammering at parties in France and then just like taking down wealthy dowagers. Well, Brandy and, and, and cognac. Mm-hmm. Franklin loved French cognac. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, I mean, you go back to the golden age of sail, which we spend so much time in. Everybody thinks, when they think of piracy and sailing, they think of rum. Brandy was the officer's drink. It's Nelson's mm-hmm. blood. Yeah, it's Nelson's blood was brandy. It's not yeah. rum. Right. So Rasputin, by 1912, was drinking so much that his czar appointed security detail, and yes, he had a constant security detail with him at all times when he was out and about and getting up to God knows what. Like, for the most part, he had... He had bodyguards who would just watch what he was doing and just go, well, huh. Well, the Tsars had always been fairly heavy-handed with the use of secret police. Yes. Which is also very funny because everybody knew about the the secret secret police police. and who they were. (laughs) But the security detail came up with a complicated and very thorough classification system for his intoxication. This is incredible. These levels were slightly inebriated, inebriated, fairly drunk, Drunk, very drunk, completely drunk, dead drunk, and totally overcome with drink. <laughs> uh, wasn't, pretty... wasn't that me at our last uh, our, our last trip to Bradenton? I don't. I don't know. They missed. I think they missed a level. Confident enough to drive. <laughs> so His there horse are, card. Yeah, there are reports stating that unless he was meeting the Tsar or Tsarina directly, he would drink an average of 10 to 12 bottles of wine a day. And wine wine besides brandy being his his preferred drink of choice at this point, although he would take anything to hand if there wasn't wine around, yeah, brandy was his enjoyment drink. Wine was just his maintenance booze. Wasn't it also the case for Andre the Giant? Yeah. Yeah, Okay, I was about to bring this up. This is Andre the Giant levels of drinking. Right, Andre the Giant used to pregame with like half a case or more of wine. Yes. But But he was a lot larger. Yeah, I was about to say, Rasputin is a third the man's size. Well, and the other thing, that's that's some manly shit there. Have you, well, all of us here, I know have had a wine hangover at some point. Oh, God. If you're drinking maintenance wine. It's a lot of tannins, man. Oh, my God. It's, I have a bottle and I feel like garbage the next day. How yeah. red were his teeth? <laughs> because he preferred red over white. To, well, everybody, everybody that drinks so, I was going to say, so the most sophisticated. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, so his security detail would also get in the habit of taking him out of parties or bars when he got too drunk. And they would throw him in the car to drive him around the block a bunch of times to sober him up before letting him go right back into the party oh or God. taking him somewhere else. Which is exactly what you want to do with a drunk, is you want to take him out and give him the spins. Yeah. <laughs> and, Ras- and Rasputin's drunkenness was a constant force in St. Petersburg, or wherever he went. He would just show up to places hammered and completely take over the event, and seem to do whatever pleased him. 
Now, this is one thing if we're talking about restaurants or parties or a bathhouse or whatever it may be, but it's another thing entirely when we get into Rasputin's habit of showing up to large state functions. For example, the official state opening of the new session of the Duma, which is the National Legislature, or the 300th anniversary gala of the ascension of the Romanovs. And he was invited to none of these events, but he showed up hammered, having not been invited. But not only that, he would show up in a full Orthodox bishop's regalia. Which, if you've ever seen an Orthodox bishop's regalia, that is something to behold. That's the high hat with the curtains, right? A lot of the accessories. high hat with the curtains. A fun little thing they do now is because now that since cars became a thing, how most of them have a cross on the top of the, the hat. The cross will be on a on a hinge and flip down so you can fit inside the car. <laughs> and then it'll flip it they back got, up. They, they, got a little, they, Boy, they get a little button in their hand and ding! Well, no, you just have somebody just reach up and go, <laughs> bink! And <laughs> there it goes. Now, and, and we don't know how he got a hold of it. We don't know... We don't know if anybody knew this was coming, but the man wasn't even an ordained priest, let alone a bishop. And he would show up, everybody wondering what the fuck he's trying to pull, and he would always try to go for the best seat in the house, right in the front row, at these events where a ton of protocol is involved. It'd be like you showing up to the State of the Union address in your nun habit, blackout drunk. It would be like us showing up. Wine. It would be like us showing up as the renegades after opening day. Showing up to the State of the Union, but then, but like he wasn't best friends. Yeah, like we're not best friends with a sitting president. But it's not us trying. He was the kept man of the emperor. But we're also, but it's also, it's not him trying to show up and sit in the gallery. This would be like him showing up at the State of the Union and trying to sit next to the vice president. And it's it's, and so Nancy Pelosi, just just drunk. Oh wait, hold on. Well, yeah. (laughs) To be fair, that's her husband. Uh, I don't know. I've seen Nancy Pelosi in a couple states. Sometimes unions. you got to keep up. You do have, have to you keep seen up. those things. I get fucking hammered too. I, yeah, I, I, I'm, I don't I'm not fault. Hey, fault I'm like not blowing up drunk. <laughs> I really don't. Like, there's always like so much pearl clutching over that. Like that's just boring, man. <laughs> when when do I have to stand because they're on my side? I love that. Between, uh, <laughs> before the State of the Union, most people go on Meet the Press. We would go pregame. Right. I love it. Uh, I'm sure most of them stop in pregame. Mm. Yeah, they all have bars in their office. Mm -hmm. Now, inevitably, someone would walk up and tell him that he had to leave, and he would always react in the same way. He would, you know, swaying slightly due to his inebriation, he would fix the person with a really, really intense stare, looking right into their eyes with his own big, wild eyes, and then he would just stare at them, try to stare them down for like 20, 30, 40 seconds. And then, but it never worked. Everybody would just go, dude, you got to go. And then he'd just stare and then go, okay, and then just leave. <laughs> and just fuck off to the bar. Off he went. Now, Rasputin would also make odd requests. Surprised he wasn't going, no, 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 He would make odd requests to the czar as well. One anecdote had him demanding of the czar after one of his very public drinking bouts that upset the royal couple. He, he tried to drive Tsar Nicholas to make an official proclamation, changing his name to Novri Raspiocha, which just means New Rasputin. <laughs> like an official state proclamation that his name was now New Rasputin. See, see, man, I don't want to be Rasputin anymore, man. <laughs> I want to be I mean, New Rasputin. New Rasputin. <laughs> we saw how this worked with New Coke. Like, it does it just, and shockingly, Nicholas didn't go with it. 
And an, another true dirtbag story had Rasputin getting into a fistfight with his own father on a, biz, on a visit back to Brokovskoya after his father allegedly called him, quote, an ignorant old fool who's only good for fondling Dunya's soft parts. No word on who Dunya is. They got in a fistfight. He gave his father a black eye, and while trying to beat up, further beat his father, Rasputin fell and hurt his hip, which gave him a noticeable limp for the rest of his life. All his injuries are the dumbest drunk stories ever. They really are. Like his horn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we really undersold the horn when he was beaten with a large portion of fence <laughs> that he was trying to steal. trying yeah. to steal. It's, oh, I love it. And Rasputin's antics were goldmine for Russia's exploding tabloid newspaper industry. Now, they had some restrictions on press freedom, but there were always ways for them to get around this all, normally by not actually giving the real name of the person they were talking about, like we talked about last time. But these constant drunken episodes were delicious fodder for a press that was capitalizing on the public's feelings of confusion as to just why this drunken peasant, who was constantly publicly making an ass of himself, was so close to the royal family. We're talking about a group of people that have to be poised and observe protocol all the time, and so does everybody directly involved with them, except for this guy. Everybody was completely baffled. Now, it wasn't just the public confusion and journalistic attacks that Rasputin was subjected to. He had managed to make enemies of some pretty significant institutional bodies in Russia at the time, especially in St. Petersburg. The first among these was the Russian Orthodox Church, one of the most corrupt institutions in a country full of corrupt institutions, who were more than a little mad, not because of Rasputin's supposed immorality or his fuck clownery, but that the most popular monk in Russia was someone who didn't buy into the orthodoxy, and thanks to the aristocracy's fandom of him, was cutting into their bottom line by holding the spiritual attentions of the church's most wealthy donors. Now, the ecclesiastical investigation into Rasputin began pretty much as soon as he got back from his first visit to St. Petersburg and his first meeting with the Tsar. The local bishop sent a couple of priests to Prokovskoya to ask questions about Rasputin's class, or his Rasputin's past, and his alleged membership in the Klisti. Remember the weird dancing fuck cult that we talked about. And the nature of his little congregation that he led in town, which was still mostly his family at this point. And then had the priests make a public statement declaring him a heretic and an apostate for not following the church's orthodoxy and being a member of a sexy weird cult. The public response to this was underwhelming. I wish we'd have done this with Steve Bannon. (laughs) Maybe things would have been different. Nobody would believe Steve Bannon fucks. (laughs) That is true. Well, he Uh, is a crust goth, though. (laughs) He wishes No, he's just crusty. Oh, 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 my bad. I do like when he was in court the other day just wearing two shirts. He does that. That's so weird. He does the multiple polo shirts thing. like No, dude, but they're not polo shirts. They're not polos. They're, they're, they're just button downs. Button down yeah. shirts. But there's like a bunch of them and a jacket. But it's like the douchebags we went to high school with would do with polos. Listen, when you're like literally just a walking syphilis liege, legion, like you, you got to. You need that extra support to hold That's it all a together. lumpy yeah. man. That is just a lumpy, lumpy dude. <laughs> so the people basically looked right back at the priests and basically went, yeah, we, we know he's an asshole. And, but he's an asshole who met the czar. And the thing we like most about him is that he isn't preaching the same shit you people are. Which, by the way, we've been hearing for centuries and we're still here living in the big suck. Mm. So that investigation pretty petered out pretty much as soon as it began. So, another investigation was launched with another bishop at its head to try and do the same thing, but with more authority. But this bishop actually decided to question Rasputin himself, and instead of discovering heresy, discovered Rasputin's charm instead. 
intensely liking both the man, his simple peasant outlook on God, and his basso profundo singing voice. <laughs> Jesus Which, Christ, you're thirsty, aren't you, Kyle? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not exactly sure how much of that the, the mics are going to pick up. My dog was just loudly drinking for like yeah. 90 seconds. <laughs> so apologies, everybody. But this is a warts and all show, including Vinny. The dog's part of the show. He just wrote the last one in. Yeah. That said, Rasputin's voice, singing voice, thirst-inducing. Well, well, I mean, I, I, I do have some examples. Does that make of, him a thirst of, trap? Of Russian basso, like... I feel like Thirst Trap is on the long list of uh, titles that Rasputin has earned over the, I mean, the decades. I mean, te- technically speaking, it's not outside the uh, realm of possibilities. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because I, I, I have an example here, because y- y'all know I keep that thing on me, so... Well, that sure as hell does it for me. And that is how Rasputin charmed a bishop. Listen, I, I so I was in a men's a cappella choir in college, and uh, there were a lot of questionable dudes who laid some pipe because of having a voice like that. Because they were just singing Volga Boatman all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so, declaring Rasputin to be an odd and unorthodox, but ultimately harmless to Mother Church... This bishop, who was an aristocrat, fell into the same pattern as all the higher-ups who had been previously charmed by Rasputin with the whole, oh, I like him, he's different aspect of it all. However, around 1910, another religious figure would now enter the picture, one from Rasputin's past, an old friend, Sergei Trufanov, better known by his ecclesiastical name, Eliodor. Now, when Eliodor... It's a bad guy name. I love it. It's, It's a bad guy name. Yeah, I see Blofeld from... Yeah, it's a bad guy. Just imagine him dressed as a Russian Orthodox priest. Petting a hairless cat. Yeah, bad guy name. (laughs) And so, when Iliodor and Rasputin last spent time together, it was in Kazan, where Rasputin first gained the attention of church authorities as somebody with truly unique talents. And at the time, he had been, Rasputin had been a genuinely pious, repentant, apparently humble holy man. Now, in the years since, Rasputin had become incredibly famous across Russia for his connections to the aristocracy and the royal family, and Iliador, the previously humble, quiet, friendly monk, had become something of a firebrand. Now a hiero monk, somebody who was officially a monk but also an ordained priest, Iliador had something of an on, was something of an enfant terrible hardliner for the church, very publicly railing against sins like sex work, homosexuality, and being Jewish. And Every church position in Greek Orthodoxy sounds like. A like, D- like, like, a, like, like a D&D a class in Dark Souls or something. Yeah, like a D&D player class. Like, what I'm a level it? nine Hiera monk. What was their position on getting all spinsy in a root cellar? Uh, I'm going to say, judging by the original thing, against it. And I'm <laughs> guessing that Iliador probably wasn't in favor of it if he thought things like being Jewish were the worst thing you could be. <laughs> so, it's... Uh, I'm glad things have changed in yeah. Russia. Well, the, the, yeah. The anti-Semitism is gone. Well, and, and Iliador was also a <laughs> very, very forward-thinking. Iliador was also a very vocal critic of the Tsar and his uh, and his cabinet, and he was also a fiery Slavic nationalist, basically Father Coglin in a fur hat, having aligned himself with an ultra-nationalist far-right political party called the Union of the Russian People. Now, Iliador and Rasputin crossed paths again some five years after their parting ways in Kazan, and Iliador had followed Rasputin's trajectory, believing him to be a way into the Tsar to further his political machinations. 
However, Iliador being Iliador and Rasputin being Rasputin, they immediately came into conflict because Iliador would spend all his time ranting about Jews and Sodomites, which were two groups of people that, contrary to the general Russian Orthodoxy, Rasputin was totally cool with. He made friends with a lot of Jews and a lot of queer people, and he vocally defended both publicly and to his highborn patrons. Now, it's about the most Christ-like thing he got up to. Pretty much, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, Iliador would claim that when he met Rasputin well, again... Well, <laughs> there's a rabbit hole I could go down to that I'm just going <laughs> to put a pin in and just let that sit. Now, Iliador would claim that when he met Rasputin again, what turned him against his old friend was Rasputin using too much free language regarding what power he had over the royal family and the nature of his sexual relationships with highborn women, including hinting that he may have been involved with a little slap and tickle with the Empress herself. However, other witnesses would later write that the main reason Iliador took objection to Rasputin was that Rasputin went on and on about how much he fucked, but also kept relentlessly teasing Iliador for having never gotten laid. Oh my god, so he's just, he's just an incel. And he's, he's a 4chan troll. Yeah, and Iliador uh, took that teasing about... Did he Rasputin to Chad? Yeah, and, he, and he, Iliador took that teasing about his being a virgin personally, or at least with women, because there are some people who would later comment that Iliador's homophobia was a um, compensation for a big part of his private life. Again, nothing Usually new is. under the sun. I know we talked about this in the Just the Ian series, but I'm just going to harp this back. The human brain has not changed in 10,000 years. No. We're, we've always been programmed this stupidly. Correct. Yep. It's a Correct. miracle we're still here. Now... This flipped Iliador, who teamed up with a bunch of noblemen and high clergy to try to remove Rasputin's influence over the royal family. Now, having been promoted to the position of Archimandrite... It's just so again, good. It's so good. Iliador became part of a sexy plot that, uh, to blackmail Rasputin into leaving St. Petersburg. Now, this plot involved a friend of Rasputin's, a Finnish ballerina named Lisa Tan- uh, Tanzanen, who invited Rasputin over to her place one night, where they proceeded to get falling down drunk together. And when the time was right... Some of Lisa's friends from the corps de ballet, likely sex workers hired by the clergy, showed up and everybody got naked and started to have some fun. But there were hidden cameras set up in Lisa's place to photograph the goings-on, and soon some snaps emerged of a shirtless Rasputin getting really grindy and grabby with a bunch of naked ballerinas. They didn't even have to be hidden. He probably would have just done the Patrick Bateman, like, point at the camera and flex as he fucks. Yeah, you're not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Get get my cock's good side. <laughs> it's and soon after the party, a delivery man knocked on Rasputin's door with an envelope containing these photos and a letter with a clear ultimatum: "Leave town and don't come back, or we give these pictures to the czar." Do you remember when they tried that with Yarmir Yager, and he just published the pictures himself and was like, "Yo, no, I'm it, was, s- it was the girl. It was the girl. Yeah, in she the tried photo. to blackmail. She wait, said, wait, I'm wait, wait. Put these- And then he was like, "I'll put it out myself." Yeah, he was like, "I'm, I'm, I'm." I'm 55 and I'm fucking 18 She was a 19 year old supermodel mm. and he was 42 and he was like I'm 42 and single you're a 19 year old supermodel this is not the kind of blackmail that you think it is <laughs> go ahead and tag me Funny so, you should mention she, that. So she did, and yeah. then unfortunately, it did turn out that she was dating one of the. He was oh, the yeah, player captain right. or player coach of a hockey team. Yep. it was one of the guys on the team. That which apparently right. there that were no did, hard yeah. feelings there. Huh? <laughs> also, but I didn't process a lot of that because I'm still trying to figure out my shock that Kyle dropped a really specific sports reference. I like hockey. 
I actually like hockey. Kyle's a slightly built white guy with a vaguely Nazi-ish haircut. Of course he likes. Yeah. Ho- of course he likes hockey. Yeah. There's nothing vague about that haircut. <laughs> I asked but Kyle, what'll, what'll it be, sir? Something to match my tiki torch, please. I, I asked Kyle for directions, and he was like, "Well, you go down Butler Street and you take the Third Reich." <laughs> right. Oh, he, walks, he walks in. What'll it be today? The, the Reinhardt Heydrich again? <laughs> that was fine so you got specific man <laughs> like you don't bring up a dude's name like that, that took it too far uh, it's, that that's the line out of all we're, we're up to what 60 episodes that's the line no, I'm just saying it's, it's, it's one thing to say Kyle has a Nazi haircut it's another thing to say Kyle has a Reinhardt Heydrich haircut <laughs> I do have a fridge full of Kolsch right now I smuggled in. <laughs> you are not helping your case! I know. Anyway. It's really good, though. Before, before Kyle derailed this with his blatant Arianism. <laughs> blatant Arianism. I, I love that. That's a new phrase. The, the whole time we were talking about Iliador denouncing Judaism, Kyle just like, his eyebrows just went up a little bit. He was like, well. Just kind of blink, <laughs> s- sank back into the chair. Like, yeah, I mean, I get it. Let's, let's hear him out. So, he's the Archimandrite. Must have done something. You got rid of the old guy. <laughs> so instead of, oh, God, I try to put this thing back on the tracks. Okay. So, it's, so Rasputin, instead of running away or having it go to the newspapers and enjoying the photos that made him look like the king of Fuck Mountain, decided to get a hold ahead of the whole thing by taking the photos to the czar himself and going I'm sorry I am a sinner this is my burden which but also Nicholas check out this shit look what I did to that hole <laughs> <laughs> because here's the thing I actually do think that Rasputin truly believed that sex was his his religious burden it was that it was his horniness was well, a God thing. God gave him a 13 inch cock. It's, Rasputin's <laughs> dick was so big that his dick's dick has a dick and it's bigger than your dick. Yeah. Like, I would show people my nudes too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, Rasputin, what are those girls doing to your leg? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but I think he actually did believe that his sex drive was some kind of punishment, that it was some kind of constant test from God. But Which honestly would make sense if he even remotely dabbled in any of the Calistiism. That's true. Yeah, he may have done yeah. it sober. Could have. Could have, yeah. And so the account states that the czar sat with his fingers rubbing his temples, exasperated. <laughs> basically just going... Fucking idiot. Basically just going, <laughs> just, I just, uh, just... Just don't... Don't do it again, I guess. But what's that called? But instead of... His <laughs> real battle position. <laughs> yeah. so, also, what's this particular move? <laughs> I call it the baby elephant walk. <laughs> but instead of... Banning, I've got this book. He's just I tagging in the photographer I, that he sees clearly standing with like three quarters out from behind the a curtain. They say hidden camera. It's definitely a dude with a camera with a lampshade on his head. <laughs> yeah, like, have you seen how big the cameras were? <laughs> no, they, had, they did have handheld cameras. But if there point, was a but... flash, good lord... <laughs> <laughs> so, which there wouldn't have been. They waited during do dark photography back then. So no, if it was yeah. even remotely a, a, a dark den, well, they, so they waited pictures, for a thunderstorm. Here's the thing: is these pictures, <laughs> these pictures exist. They do exist, and it is it, it's it's as weird and it's it's somehow very hedonistic yet sanitized at the same time like all like early 1900s it is, it is just it is. without a shirt on completely fuck my google search like, history yeah. I, I, mean, I love the fact oh, that I had just, to, dude I had to dig to find him 
you yeah, might not. I, but might it is. I mean, like I said, it's just him without a shirt on. Yeah. Like it's, we don't get to see the old Volga, the old Volga boatman, but I know he's there. <laughs> it is just. Him I, with I shirt love on. the fact yeah. that we glossed over the fact that Rob just said, like early 1900s porn like we all know early 1900s porn is like oh, come on. everybody just it. assumes that <laughs> we've all seen it let's not lie to ourselves I was a film major I watched the yeah. movies man and so but instead of banishment or any punishment whatsoever which this <laughs> I'm not talking about in this room I'm talking about like our listeners we got 10,000 listeners and, and they're all going there was porn before nineteen fifty. Just think of it as like a fucking silent <laughs> film. <laughs> like you could hear the you could hear the film rolling. And like Come the on, every, everybody like, knows there was no pornography before nineteen seventy six. The weird thing is, like earliest cinema was super like, nudastic, and yeah. then the Hays Code came like, in and boned mm-hmm. everything up for sixty. Years. The frames come up every once in a while. Oh God, <laughs> I'm arriving. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm arriving. <laughs> I'm culminating. <laughs> Man, all silent a, film form. All, all, all of a sudden, it starts working super fast, like, like off speed, like the, <laughs> the tempo of the in cinema piano player picks <laughs> up. As it's going on. Anyway, I'm go okay. Instead of banishment or any punishment whatsoever, it's fine. I'm over here trying this, to find Rasputin nudes, which this clerical cabal foresaw. You just find the jar, man. There's a lot of jar in those. Yeah. Rasputin instead was rewarded for his fuck up by Nicholas with an all expenses paid first class pilgrimage to the Holy Land. So, but when Rasputin came back, word had gotten around, and now there are dozens, hundreds, and even thousands of people who are trying to get Rasputin the fuck away from the royal family. And foremost among them, alongside Iliodor, was a former old, another former old friend of Rasputin's, an archbishop named Hermogen, famous for his massive bushy beard, even by Russian standards, and a famously high-pitched voice that some think may have come from him having castrated himself early in life to prove his dedication to Christ. Now, not liking the new drunk party monster that Rasputin had become, and resenting his influence at the royal family, Hermogen, working with Iliodor, invited Rasputin to a party at the Archbishop's St. Petersburg townhouse. However, instead of a good old-fashioned party, Rasputin was greeted by Hermogen, Iliador, and a pair of Duma members named Colonel Ivan Rodinov and a, quote, epileptic half-wit named Dmitry Kolyaba, and things took a very intervention-y turn. Hermogen started off by publicly laying into Rasputin, calling him every brand of no-good motherfucker he could think of, and when Rasputin tried to verbally repost, Kolyaba... The epileptic halfwit just lost his shit and started screaming wordlessly before grabbing Rasputin hard right on the cock. And I'm, I'm relatively. So he gets both hands in there. Just, just this moment of like, ah, and just grabs him. I'm relatively sure that the retort, uh, Rasputin's retort to the epileptic was. Why are you listening to Dickless over here? Well, no, I think his, I think his retort was probably to look Koyaba right in the eye and just is that sl- true, Padre? And just start yeah. slowly moving this back man and forth. No dick. I was gonna say, you gonna finish? Yeah. Well, that's what I heard. At that point, you just look him in the eye and just start slowly moving back and forth and go. Now, now we're doing something. You want to make this weird? We made it weird. Let's yeah. do this. So Rasputin managed to wriggle his junk free, but they all grabbed him and hauled him into the chapel where Rasputin was made after Hermogen beat him with a crucifix to swear an oath never to speak to the royal family again, and they let him go. But as soon as he was out of there, that's exactly what Rasputin did. He went and tattled on him. So, for organizing the whole thing... Snitches get masturbated in a church. (laughs) Hermogen was... 
by an by a, what was it a, an epileptic by half wit? <laughs> I'm not sure that I want that. Epileptic. I mean, Boy, this is a weird episode of Oz. Hey, I, I I might want a hand job, but I don't want a hand job for the uh, from the arm wrestling championship <laughs> champion of the world either. No knock it to you, try it, Padre. <laughs> Here's the thing: is there actually was a party happening? They just did this in the middle of the party, where they grabbed him by the junk, and he wriggles out, and they all tackled him, and then dragged him to the house's chapel because we are in a bishop's townhouse, I guess. I'm just saying it. Look. It's it's a they he was described as a halfwit and I'm going to use a phrase that I don't mean any other way uh, than uh, idiot strength. Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there it is. I was smash that cough button. I can tell you that. Oh boy, I was like, oh, Padre is about to get us canceled. Yeah, here we now, go. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> they, that's what it you I, you wound it's up. It's a with biological term. <laughs> I don't want to be blank, but. Yeah. And, and the <laughs> I love that the epileptic halfwit was a member of the Duma. You're, right. you're basically sending in Forrest Gump MP. Have you Again, seen the people politics that they elect haven't now? changed. Yeah, like, yeah, nothing has And I don't changed. care what party you're talking about. I mean, this is yeah. basically what MTG did a couple say, days ago to that guy at yeah. the uh, at CPAC. Yeah. Well, I, I would probably refer to her as an epileptic <laughs> oh. halfwit. With... <laughs> that, is, that is fair. Dianne Feinstein would have done it, but then just immediately forgot about it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's fair. So for, or- <laughs> for organizing the whole thing, Hermo- Bishop Hermogen was publicly expelled from his position and exiled to Belarus, and the two Duma members were removed from their positions. Iliador then responded by throwing a very public, prolonged, high-profile shit fit, where he denounced the Orthodox Church as an abomination and a desolation called the Holy Synod a house of pigs, called the Empress a Rasputin the Chat woman, whatever that means, and the Emperor a, quote, little man, a drunk, a weed puffer, and a fool, and then that the heir Alexei, and then stated that the heir Alexei had been fathered by Rasputin himself. He then denounced his faith in a statement written in his own blood, calling Orthodox Christianity nothing more than magic and superstition. Then he declared himself a pagan deist and fucked off down to the Caucasus to become a sort of, let's call it an independent studetz. Yeah, and he also, troll. He also published, also again in his own blood, yeah. a formal apology to Jews, which only enraged the church further. Yeah. He was like, guys, I fucked up. You're all right. It's, <laughs> here's some of my blood. Here's the thing. is is After he got thrown out of the church, he did the apology to Judaism, which, okay. May or may not have been genuine. Well, I, I think it honestly was. I think he was deep in, in the throes of, let's call it an episode. But he also did deep dive further, well, when you're and, further writing, and further into far-right politics. When, when, when you're writing things out in your yeah. own blood, you just got to get a whole bunch of shit out. It's, it, it's kind of one of those... Uh, just one of those thought exercises. Yeah, you're having a moment <laughs> when you're writing stuff in your own blood. Stream of consciousness. Stream, yeah, stream of and consciousness. some blood. Right. However, the story of Iliador is not quite over, and we'll hear more from him later. Now, Rasputin then began the process of replacing his enemies with friends of his own, and this is where his collection of a real cast of characters truly begins, where he starts to form his kind of his own whack pack, and that he called his scoundrels. The first, selected to fulfill the role vacated by Hermogen, was a cleric named Varnava, who had a reputation for having a high voice, a slender build, and being, quote, delicately handsome. So much so that one of Varnava's favorite activities was to put on women's garb and go off to seduce powerful men. Okay, so here's your Stephen Miller. (laughs) So Varnava managed to seduce no less than the governor of Siberia, a relative of Nicholas's, but after he was outed for this because of his connection to Rasputin, 
No consequences were forthcoming, and the whole thing was swept under the rug. And Rasputin keeps bringing these people in, these odd figures who are on the fringe of the power structure, and he keeps recommending that these people be put into power, and that these people who are all, without exception, terrible at their jobs. But they are they are primarily based on their loyalty to one particular person. If only we had some sort of research experience say, to know what that was God, like. God, we don't replicate that ever. Yeah. Now, the Okrana, the Tsar's secret police, because these people were a bunch of, quote, rascals and no good miscreants, according to their agency head, kept tabs on all these people. And they were all given fun little code names. And the whole thing ends up sounding like a John le Carre spy novel that was ghostwritten by Alex Jones. <clears throat> Rasputin had one himself. At first, he was known simply as The Russian. But then he became known as the Dark One. That's super fucking awesome. Which is kind of, which is pretty metal. Now, in addition, some of the other code names had that were a little more whimsical uh, included, but uh, weren't limited to the Crow, the Jackdaw, the Dove, the Owl, the Bird, Winter, Summer, and the Monk. And this all sounds like fun, but you don't want your cabinet members most known for being a bit of a character. Like, you don't want Will the Farter to be your defense minister. Like, it, it just doesn't work like that. Well, I'm just thinking, okay, if you're in a circus... And, and I am. And you're, and you're in the freak show, and all your buddies are freaks, and you're hanging out with the freaks. And the bearded lady makes it to center stage, makes it to the center ring. She's going to start bringing her buddies, right? That is how it tends to work, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of what's going on here. Yeah. Now, Rasputin was now making enemies on both camps of the political spectrum, both pro-Czarist and anti-Czarist. The anti-Czarist saw him as an indicator of an outdated and broken system that kept in after harmful people in positions of power, and the pro-Czar camp saw him as somebody who would damage the royal reputation and put both the Tsar and, by extension, them at risk in a time already rife with revolutionary undercurrents. And they were both right. Now, Rasputin was bad for everybody except his little clique in the political realm. A really complicated scenario is being broken down to a single figure, and the person who and the people who want to affect radical change are going to use that to hit you with over and over and over again. And Rasputin had some pretty powerful figures to contend with. Peter Stoll, I was just going to say, and keep in mind, Alexei's health condition mm -hmm. is a complete secret at this complete point. Complete state secret. Yeah. So no Less one has any clue why this nutcase is still around. So they just fill the gap with their own narrative. Mm-hmm. And so you have Peter Stolyapin, the prime minister at the time, who was an avid opponent of Rasputin and saw him as a very real danger to the country's stability and made no bones about telling the Tsar what he thought. And Stolyapin was somebody the Tsar had to keep happy because he was the highest political figure in the country besides Nicholas himself. Now, the prime minister, though, was totally baffled by Rasputin's presence because even he didn't know about little Alexei's hemophilia. But during a visit to Kiev in 1911, where Stolyapin was also attending, Rasputin had a sudden vision as the Prime Minister's carriage was pulling away from a state function, crying out, Can't you see? Death is riding behind him! He spent the rest of the evening muttering to himself about death and tossed and turned in his sleep, saying, Death is coming! Don't you believe me? Now, sure enough, the next day when attending the opera, Pyotr Stolyapin was approached by a radical university student who pulled a revolver and fired a shot into his chest. Stolyapin died five days later. Now, as a result, Rasputin's supernatural legend grew, and when it was time for a new prime minister to be approved by Nicholas, it was Rasputin who would be one of the deciding voices in the matter. When Stolyapin's successor, who went by the nickname The Fattest Man in Russia, was chosen, and I'm not joking about that, it is capital F, capital M, capital R, Fattest Man in Russia, 
He wasn't a big fan of Rasputin, but he was also later dismissed by Nicholas for his failure to contain the press, mostly regarding commentary on Rasputin and on the nature of his relationship with Alexandra. Now, in 1912, some would say, put into motion by Iliador, a series of letters between Rasputin and Alexandra and the four royal daughters was released to the press. Now, we know that Alexandra and Rasputin didn't have a sexual relationship, nor was he engaging in any kind of sexual activity with any of the daughters, but the intimate tone of all these letters played into a public zeitgeist that said the opposite. The imperial family was humiliated and refused to see Rasputin for a while as the consequences for his carelessness. Given that he was, it was likely someone managing to steal the letters directly out from under him while he was drunk or out getting laid that led to the leak. Although it could have been an informant within the royal court themselves acquiring and copying the letters before they left the palace. However, while he was back sulking in Siberia, the telegram miracle, the one we referenced before where Rasputin seemingly managed to heal a deathly sick Alexei from afar, happened. And so Rasputin was right back into the royal fold and there was almost nothing that could be done to separate them now. Almost. Because all of Rasputin's alleged debauchery truly came to a head in late March of 1915 on a visit to Moscow at a popular restaurant and night spot called Yar. Hmm. Which, hmm. that's... You, you gotta show up drunk to Yar. You don't, you don't go to Yar sober. Nar. <laughs> Yarp. Now, that's so, pretty funny. Har. Oh, God. <laughs> Setting up, uh, this, is going go too, see Guar. this is going too far. <laughs> now, setting up shop at a large table with a bunch of friends, dinner and drinks were had, but Rasputin got up to his old tricks and was soon heavily drunk, getting handsy with the dancing girls, writing dirty notes to the female singers, and dancing wildly, making a bit of a spectacle of himself. Things took a bit of a turn when he jumped up on the table and started bragging very loudly to anyone who would listen about the nature of his relationship with the Tsarina acting in a way that was, according to the official police report, sexually psychopathic. <laughs> now, he loudly went on and on about how good he was at fucking and began pointing at his belt, yelling, See this belt? It is Her Majesty's work. I can make her do anything. He started then making, according to the report, obscene gestures while inferring that he was reenacting having sex with the Tsarina, referring to Alexandra as the old girl. He drew quite the crowd, and when somebody stated that they didn't believe he was actually Rasputin, he undid his fly button, pulled out his allegedly massive todger, and started waving it around, slapping it against his thighs, and screaming, Now do you believe me? <laughs> he did the helicopter in well, public. I, he, he had to. off. Well, no, he was jumping around. <laughs> Swinging it around. He's just flying around the restaurant. <laughs> he was jumping around on the table, giving it the old bat, 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 bat. And if you've got a dick, you've done the bat, bat, bat. Because yeah. everybody who has a dick has done the bat, bat, bat. It's hilarious. It's, it's very funny. Sexually psychopathic. <laughs> I have all, like myself, See I have this? been I have been accused of being sexually psychopathic, but it's because I just pretend there's another person around. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's sexually schizophrenic. <laughs> First time I had sex, and it scared the shit out of me. Hey, alone at night like that, terrifying. <laughs> so the police. <laughs> Who are you? Just alone in the dark. Why are you touching me? <laughs> terrifying. The horniest sleep paralysis demon there is. Please don't talk about sleep paralysis demon. No. My, so, <laughs> my favorite part of the story too is, hey, see this. This is my dick. It was like his ID. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you don't think I'm Rasputin? Well, you know I keep that thing on me. <laughs> like, and he just. Would you see this dick? 
You've seen his face. <laughs> so I just now I just imagine his dick had the exact same beard. <laughs> <laughs> Two crazy eyes on the end of it. Yeah. So the police were finally no, called. No, just one. Yeah. <laughs> I think the police were finally called, and I think that the bat 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 was the last straw. And Rasputin was arrested, dragged out Baton, of... Baton, I have one of those too! Thap, 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 thap. <laughs> dragged out of yard... They refused to enter like a bunch of Uvalde police officers. They're like, I'm not going anywhere near anything. Dragged... <laughs> Fuck that bitch. He just turns and they all take a giant leap back. <laughs> I can't believe they wouldn't go in after a man with a dick. There's 700 of them there. They all have dicks. <laughs> so The only thing that stops a guy with a dick is a good guy with a dick. <laughs> <laughs> so Rasputin was arrested, dragged out of Yar, snarling and cursing, and was taken to the police station to sit in the cell overnight. But no official charges were ever filed. Did they give him his belt back? One would assume... <laughs> And he had a bunch of like super expensive clothes, yeah. so like I, I assume he would know which belt is his. Yeah. He's and, not buying shit off the rack. <laughs> he was rich, bitch. Yeah, and the Mo- so, and and he also had the Moscow police commissioner and got personally involved in the case due to the high profile individual involved. He instead re- released Rasputin, but he passed a list of recommendations on how to handle Rasputin up to the czar. Now, of course, the incident hit the tabloids the very next day, and it was the talk of Russian media for about the next week. And according to recent research, this is particularly due to some details of the evening having been provided to the press by the Okhrana, by the secret, by the Tsarist secret police. But what really made headlines a couple weeks later was when that same Moscow police commissioner who oversaw Rasputin's case and cut him a break was fired by the Tsar for what ended up being an unrelated political matter. But the guy was replaced with a staunch supporter of Rasputin. So the wider public didn't see that the guy was why the guy was fired for for whatever reason, that he wasn't fired for handling the arrest of Rasputin. They just see that the dude who handled the whole thing getting the boot after Rasputin gets arrested, and the Tsar replaced him with a guy who's a big Rasputin fan after a very public declaration by Rasputin that he was fucking the Empress. And that man's name was Harvey Robert Levin. And so whether this incident at Yark happened in totality or it only partially happened, it doesn't really matter. What what it's most indicative of is just how powerful the media machine was when it came to Rasputin and how the public's perception of him was affected by it. The Yar incident was something of a breaking point, too, for Nicholas and Alexandra. The press was too hot on this one. And even in their insulated position, they couldn't ignore it anymore, nor could they ignore every voice in their government practically saying, the dude's got to go. And as such, Rasputin was finally banished back to Siberia. Now, he wasn't totally cut off from the royals. He could still send and receive telegrams and letters, basically fulfilling the same role he always had just from afar, but having him away from St. Petersburg helped to valve off some of the pressure on the Tsar. However, Rasputin has since ceased to be the Tsar's biggest problem, because something of far, far greater consequence had arrived at Russia's doorstep, which we're going to discuss after we take a short break. Tired of listening to whiskey tubers talk about whiskeys you'll never see? Want to hear reviews about whiskeys you can actually afford? How about something you can truly find on the shelf? Are you looking for honest, unbiased feedback about the whiskeys in your budget? Then join us on YouTube at Thrifty Whiskey. Here at Thrifty Whiskey, we do blind tastings of whiskeys that are $30 and under. Bourbon, Scotch, Irish, Indian, and even Canadian. So catch us at Thrifty Whiskey. And until then, may the winds of fortune sail you. May you sail a gentle sea. May it always be the other guy who says, this drink's on me. And we're back. 
before we continue with the story, I'm going to kick it over to Kyle Graper, who's bringing us the Estonia fact of the episode brought to you by Keith Volhop, who <laughs> yes. wanted to be involved today, so he came up with our Estonia fact of the episode. We sent it, and it's Kyle's duty to it's, it's read good, us the words good of Good guy, Keith. Keith. It is. Uh, like a good American, I have not fact-checked this, so if uh, you send angry <laughs> emails, uh, direct them at Keith. Well, we will give you Keith's phone number at the end of the episode. Yeah. Yep. And uh, address. You can look it up on Google Maps. A list of his fears. Dude, yeah. we're doxing Keith. <laughs> Should have come to the episode. This is what happens. I'm still, like, fighting, like, rednecks off my front lawn with a fucking <laughs> shovel after you guys no, dox me. We'll dox him, but no swatting. Uh, yeah, we have our standards. Uh, in 2003, a small startup company began in Estonia mm. and soon, soon became a bit of a boom in the... In the uh, technology world this little startup company allowed you to sky peer-to-peer and it wasn't long before people over the world were video chatting with each other on this new app called skype hmm. whenever i was in so every godforsaken zoom meeting i have to sit through is all because know. of you estonia thanks for that no that's zoom like, Fascinating. All born, respect respect from, all born from skype, skype I, was pretty lit i do remember when a when a friend of mine uh lived in he did a year abroad. He was in Guanajuato, Mexico, and that's how we talked. Yep. And this would have been in 2005, kind probably. Of ch- really changed long-distance dating, Yeah, six too. or what? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, but even whenever I went, because I didn't have cell service, because it's just simply not how things work, yep. uh, on my BlackBerry. <laughs> the, the coolest thing in, like, 2013, when I got an Xbox One that came with the Kinect, and I could, like, Skype from my living room. Yeah. And the camera would track me as I moved around. It was pretty cool. But, yeah, I mean, I, I would Skype with people. And we have our good friends in Estonia to thank for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yes, thank you for the Estonia fact of the episode. Kyle, who was Keith, who was Kyle, who was Keith. So, anyway, back Drink to the Drink cheap whiskey. <laughs> wow, that's a really good Keith impression. It was like that's, he's here. It's like he's in the room. <laughs> I was drinking cheap whiskey well before. That was cool. (laughs) I still have flashbacks from when I desperation drank Old Crow during the early days of the pandemic. Old Crow is one of very few things that just like gets worse the drunker you get. I don't want to speak for Keith, but he said it rated pretty high on the. He did, and I now question everything about his channel. They fought whenever he said that. We had to go to we had had a commercial. (laughs) They just beat the brakes off each other right in the living room. Well, that's because we were drinking Old Crush. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why you pulled it, poured it into a Jack bottle. That was, <laughs> it was cruel. Anyway, Nicholas's attentions were soon rapidly shifted away from Rasputin's behavior and how it reflected on the office of the Tsar to a far more concerning and important matter that rose up in Europe and threatened to have truly dire consequences and would turn out to be the greatest possible disaster. The Old befall- Crow shortage of 1917. <laughs> <laughs> to, to befall Nicholas, Alexandra... Rasputin, the Russian aristocracy, Russia as a whole, Europe, and the entire world to that point in modern history. I don't see what the big deal is. One guy took a wrong turn. <laughs> you know what the wild part is? Is As much as that is the event that ultimately kicked off the First World War, at the, time, at the time... Yeah, I'm sorry. Hey, way to, way to blow soon. the lead, Chris. Uh, if, whenever this happened, a lot of the, the countries, including Russia, yeah. were like, well, that's Baltic politics. Because that kind of shit happened all the time. A lot, yeah. yeah. 
Now, this still kind of does yeah. in the ball. Too. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's like, uh, uh oh, there goes another one. Yeah. Now, this is the point where we're going to make a very long story incredibly short because we want to cover what happened to Russia in the First World I, War. I want to hear it. I want to hear you say, we're going to make the long, the, the war to end all wars a short story. Well, we're just not going to talk about that. <laughs> we're just going to talk about it as it pertains to, to old Nick and the First World War, <laughs> one act play, and Uncle Greg. <laughs> So, again, we highly recommend Dan Carlin's long-form podcast series on World War I, Countdown to Armageddon. It's a creative triumph. It does a far better job of illustrating what went down in those years than we could at this point. However, we think it's important to the context of the story to spend a little time exploring why World War I started and how things went for Russia at the time leading up to, spoiler alert, Rasputin's end. It did so, really help me understand that one of my favorite bands yeah. in high school was not, in fact, responsible for World War I. Yes. So... <laughs> Here's the, so here's the Cliff Notes version. It's it, well, I'm, my my script here does have me predicting a riot, so that's ironic. <laughs> so on June 28, 1914, the heir to the throne of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, was assassinated along with his wife in Sarajevo, Bosnia, by a 19-year-old Serbian working for an ultranationalist group known as the Black Hand, which was sponsored by certain sections of the Serbian military leadership. In the weeks to follow the assassination, the Austro-Hungarian crown rode a growing wave of nationalistic and militaristic fervor and delivered an ultimatum to the Serbians that could never be delivered upon, threatening war if their demands weren't met. Now, both nations started gearing up for conflict, but in the ensuing month of July, this rise to war wasn't happening in a vacuum. And this also met with another social pillar of the early 20th century, the Great Alliances of the period. Now, by 1914, there were two main groups of military alliances in place. The first was what became known as the Central Powers. Austria-Hungary were closely allied with their neighbor Germany, as well as the Ottoman Turks across the Bosphorus, and to a lesser extent Bulgaria and Italy. Now, Serbia was most closely allied to their much bigger Slavic neighbors, Russia, who, in a grand alliance known as the Entente, was militarily tied to France and Great Britain, with lesser partners in the Belgians and Russia's old enemy, the Japanese. Now, over the month of July, diplomacy continued to break down, and all of these nations started to mobilize their troops, and this is another area where the old world clashed with the new. Now, armies would take to the field with some units still in bright uniforms. You'd have the French Poilus in their bright blue coats and bright red trousers, the Austrian Hussars with their gleaming metal breastplates and plumed helmets, high-ranking officers in gaudy uniforms with impressive hats, lots of gold braiding, and chestfuls of gleaming medals, armies going to war with large forces of horse cavalry, the artillery still pulled by horse-drawn caissons, and infantry units still marching to combat with regimental flags and banners flying. However, the feel of the armies that we would have confused at first sight for marching into the Napoleonic Wars was countered by the realities of the day. Populations and technology had reached the point where the major combatants had standing armies in the many hundreds of thousands, the largest forces seen on the continent since the Roman Empire, along with millions of reservists. For example, the Germans were able to put their standing army of 800,000 men, along with 2.5 million reservists, into the field in six weeks, and they were not the only nation to be able to do so on this scale, thanks to modern communication, advanced road and rail networks, and colonial holdings allowing for massive secondary pools of manpower to be utilized. Mass factory production also meant that all of these men could be armed and supplied, and the technology was far more advanced than the appearances of the armies would indicate. Smooth-bore cast-iron cannons have been replaced with long-range howitzers capable of rapidly firing advanced-fuse shells, <clears throat> excuse me, advanced-fuse shells loaded with high-explosive or lethal shrapnel. Horse cavalry were augmented by the first armored cars. These battlefields would see the mass deployment of transport trucks, 
airships, airplanes, and machine guns capable of firing over 600 rounds a minute. The average soldier wasn't going to war with a smoothbore flintlock musket, but instead bolt-action rifles with lethal ranges in the, not in the hundreds of yards, but in the thousands. Messengers behind the lines wouldn't ride horses, but motorcycles. The seas didn't see the wooden sailing ships of Nelson, but instead massed fleets of dreadnought battleships weighing 25,000 tons or more, bearing batteries of massive naval guns capable of sinking enemy vessels at 15 miles range, countered with the presence of hundreds of submarines and their lethal payloads of torpedoes. Poison gas, tanks, and bombers weren't around at the start of the war, but they would all be seen on the battlefield by the time our story concludes. Now, Russia's situation was a peculiar one. As the least industrialized of all the major combatants, except perhaps the Ottomans, she was behind the ball in terms of modern military equipment. Modern military infrastructure wasn't in place for its armed forces, which would hamper their ability to provide adequate ammunition, food, medical care, and all the things a modern army needs to function in the field. But its population was also the least technology prof technologically proficient and literate, creating a problem in terms of the effectiveness of the individual soldier. Not only that, Russia shared a border with all three of its major potential enemies the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians to the west, and the Ottomans to the south. But Russia had two things going for it. The first fact was that Russia had managed to put into place, following the disaster of the 1905 war against Japan and the recent alarming wars in the Balkans, the most efficient and highly tested system of reservist and conscript mobilization among the major potential combatants. This system managed to overcome Russia's technological lacking and its size, and combined with other, Russia's other main strength, its very size and population, managed to put 5 million men into the field in less than 8 weeks, backing up oh, Russia's Lord. existing regular forces of 700,000. Now finally, on July 28, 1914, the Austro-Hungarian Empire declared war on Serbia, and within minutes, gunboats were raining shells on the Serbian capital of Belgrade. Now what's known as the July Crisis came to a sudden end as over the course of the next six days, Russia declared war on Austria-Hungary, Germany declared war on Russia, and preemptively on France, and then invaded Belgium, which brought Great Britain into the war. Now, the Ottomans wouldn't be so quick to join in, but would launch an attack against Russia in the Black Sea by the end of October. Japan would join the Allies and attack German holdings in the Pacific, and Italy would join the Allies in early 1915, while America sat out happily to provide uh, to supply food and industrial goods to everybody and to loan money to the Entente powers growing rich off of other people's wars. The one thing that Yay, does that does bear USA. some some mention here is that while Russia was behind the eight ball, after they got their asses handed to them by Japan, they put into place a system of not only mobilizing men but of modernizing their fighting mm -hmm. forces. And to their credit, it started before the outbreak of war, which mm -hmm. had some pretty decent foresight. But the plan was scheduled to be completed by 1917. Yeah. Whoops. That's well. That's the thing is. <laughs> so they missed it. They yeah. missed the mark. But that's some pretty fucking good foresight because that's fairly close. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So, and it was to be ready for conflict well, on a global scale. Mm -hmm. yep. That's very impressive. Look, we talk about the, all the things that Russia ignored. A lot of which is based around kind of the revolutionary undercurrents in the population, where they just kind of swept it under the rug and went, "Well, we'll worry about that later." This is one of the things they didn't. And this is actually one of the reasons why they were so willing and so happy to go to war because they went, "Well." We're not quite finished with what we wanted to do, but we're sitting way prettier than we used to be. Well, and we, as we talk about this, one of the things that uh, has just come to mind as you described what was going on globally, <clears throat> excuse me, um, 
we kind of get this idea that the you know with the pageantry and the the descriptions of the uniforms and the 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 old European fighting style that you know it's it's a lot like the lithographs that you see from back in the day. Mm-hmm. When I was sixteen years old, one of my history projects was to go to someone's house and interview a World War One soldier. Yeah. These people were still around in our lifetimes. Correct. I mean, this isn't we're 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 not talking about ancient history with you know, um, you know, once more great into the you know into the breach. Mm-hmm. This was, you know, there's film. Yeah, the last <laughs> World War One veteran in Britain died in 2011. Right. So I mean, yeah. I just I want our listeners to keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about you know far off. Yeah. No. It, it was, and in a lot of ways, it was a truly modern war. Uh, there were things that haven't been replicated to date. I mean, thing, like the use of chemical weapons has never been matched. Yeah, because yeah, of much, the horror. Show pretty much the only thing there. we don't still use are trenches. Mm-hmm. Other and than that, and even then, yeah, but not. I mean, certainly not to the not, same, not, not to, to the, the scale, same extent. right? But, and battleships. Yeah, we, and it was a, it was a horrific. Uh, the, conflict. Like that's kind of lumped into the navy. Right. Like the, right. that technology is kind of like. But this war the way saw the we use aircraft carriers, yeah, which we still say, use and today. the way that we used aircraft carriers mm-hmm. is the way that they would deploy battleships at right. the time. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would highly recommend if anyone is is trouble having difficulty like visualizing what this looks like. Um, the original All Quiet on the Western Front, yeah, uh, Kubrick's Paths of Glory, uh, Sam Mendes, nineteen seventeen. There's there's a lot of material out there that it dramatizes, but shows pretty darn well the the. Scale of violence and horror that was happening. All Quiet on the conflicts. Western Front does a really good job. It of, also came out like twenty years after the war. Uh, yeah, I was going to say. Of, <laughs> yeah, of, most of the extras of being had gone uh, over yeah. the top. Yeah, yeah well, in well, the when, war, when they, that's, when that's, they needed yeah. combat it was, wounded characters, they found World War One and vets who had lost limbs in the conflict like, yeah. or had been scarred. And by it was written weapons. by a guy that had been there. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, <laughs> but it even the film stays very contemporary. Mm-hmm. And it, it really tells you how bad it was on the ground. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, it's a very human story of this. It's not, like, I know Saving Private Ryan tries to say that about the Second World War, but it's mostly about the yeah. dramatization mm-hmm. of well, the violence that it's, uh, itself. All Quiet on the Western Front is very much a story of a group of men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. and, like, I, you know, my great-great, you know, my great-grandfather mm-hmm. and, and all my great-great-uncles all volunteered to fight in, in the... In the Royal Navy and in the the British Army, like you know, I, my great great grand my great grandfather, excuse me, fought at Jutland. Like it was, you know, this war is the reason I wear the poppy in November. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so news of war with Austria, Hungary, and Germany did exactly what Nicholas hoped it would. It galvanized popular support for the Russian crown, counteracted the once again rising tide of discontent amongst the population. Parades and rallies broke out in St. Petersburg, Moscow, and all the major cities of the Russian Empire. Speeches were made by aristocrat generals in gaudy uniforms, and marching units of soldiers were draped in floral necklaces and smothered with kisses as they headed to train stations. Enlistments for men who weren't already reservists or conscripts flew through the roof to the point where men waited in line outside recruitment offices for up to three days. Now, St. Petersburg, just sort of unilaterally, changed its name to Petrograd to sound less German. The economy immediately moved to... I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, Freedom Fries when I was still in college yeah. <laughs> when we were playing I th- when I say we we <laughs> when I played sports ball when the Steelers played the Ravens in some playoff series and at the time uh, Mayor Luke Ravenstall changed his name to Steelerstall for 24 hours mm-hmm. and then stopped governing and was an extra in the Dark Knight <laughs> among other things among other things whenever he forced gumped his way and, into and, office and, 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 we, and we still haven't country. found him 
Yeah. He's still missing, isn't he? Uh, he did turn up. But he was definitely, like, on the lamb. <laughs> well, I wish he'd go away again. The economy immediately moved to something of a war footing, which was sure to provide a boost to the still-flagging Russian economy. Russian central banks canceled debts to boost defense production and engaged in quantitative easing and currency Oh, planning. shit, canceled debts? we got to start another war, guys. Yeah. The, the Duma immediately... <laughs> Russia's trying. They got, you. <laughs> they got your back here, man. The Duma <sighs> immediately... was right. Yeah. The Duma immediately granted Nicholas a set of emergency war powers, helping to solidify his stance in the constant political flux between the Crown and the legislature. Which is very un-Duma. Nicholas called the Duma his greatest regret, uh, you know, upon its mountain. And they all hated each other. And we're going to learn about uh, one of the more uh, far-right politicians in the Duma uh, in our next episode, very much so. But um, they immediately... Granted him the powers, yeah. and you know, believe it or not, as much as we've talked about talked about Nicholas, he was a cavalryman. Mm-hmm. Like he he was an army man. Like he was brought up in the cavalry. That's where he felt the most comfortable. Whenever he wasn't he like was hiding on a yacht in the Black brought Sea, brought up in the <laughs> cavalry is in a big fucking set of quotes here. But I, he lived among these men. Like yeah. he was a cavalryman. It's mm-hmm. the same as like uh, the the princes, Philip, and what's the other one's name? Uh, oh, Harry um, Andrew. Andrew. Harry, yeah. Well, yeah they, Harry actually served they, they like, were in deployed. Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. 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 Prince Andrew flew Harriers in the Falklands War. Yeah, I mean, like, like the, the last two were, the one was an Apache pilot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're, I they're, think that was Harry. Yeah. Their nuts were on the fucking line. Yeah, like, they, they, they still yeah. made well, him he got, it. He got pissed. He got pissed when his unit went back in the the, the uh, in Parliament and the royal family said, no, no, no. Yeah, Harry, you're good. You, you, you went. You, you went. You, you did your thing. And he was like, no, no, my boys are out there. My my brothers are there. Yeah, that's my division. Everybody was convinced that through the simple courage of the peasant soldier and the Russian ability to drown their enemies in a sea of humanity, the war was going to be over by Christmas. The same as everyone else in every other combatant nation thought. Never mind the fact that in many Russian units, over half the men lacked rifles, and some regiments went to war without shoes. And every large Russian outfit suffered from the same sort of problems we talked about in our series on the 2nd Pacific Squadron. A lack of training, too little ammunition, corruption, revolutionary undercurrents in the ranks. Sponges. And, yep, and an officer corps that was proud and treated their soldiers like scum. Now, despite the war fever that was gripping large parts of the population, there wasn't a, there, there were a great many journalistic outlets in the country that weren't so keen on going to war at a time when it didn't seem necessary, especially when no one was directly attacking Russia itself. However, for, the, for all the popular opposition to the war they would later incur, the newspapers and tabloids that railed against the war weren't able to connect with the audience of one that really mattered, the Tsar himself. However, one person who did have the Tsar's ear was also openly anti-war. And that was Grigory that Rasputin. Big dicked pacifist. Now, Rasputin, despite being something of a scrapper in his youth, did abhor violence, especially large scale violence. And let's remember, he was still a person from a peasant background. And he knew that if war broke out, that it would be the poor peasant and worker population that is going to make up the vast majority of the soldiery, and we're going to be doing the vast majority of the fighting, the suffering, and the dying. He knew that when the economic struggles kicked in, if the war went on long enough, it would be the poor working folk who suffered first and most. He knew it would be peasant families back on the home front that would be stuck waiting potentially for years to find out if their sons, brothers, husbands, and fathers had made it, as most were illiterate, so letters home weren't really a thing, and there was no system of notification to let families know if someone was killed or missing. And the the one thing, and we keep using the word peasant, and I know this, you know, with whenever they canceled debt and things like that, it is essentially the disillusion of feudalism in Russia. Um, 
Russian peasants were never owned. No. They, they, mm. were, they were poor, but they were free. They always were. Always. At no point were these people ever indentured, which is crazy. And that's why I think Rasputin has maybe a little bit of a chip on his shoulder here mm-hmm. is because they were, especially the Siberian, uh, of, you know, all of these people are very hard, independent people. Right. And whenever you have the Kaiser saying that they're going to march their armies through Siberia, that was a big mistake because it did, like, now you have all these Siberian peasants yeah. who are volunteer. They're not being conscripted. They're volunteering to yeah. fight. The Kaiser made a statement that said that the German army was going to go all the way to Vladivostok. That that was bad. Yeah, he, he was going to he was going to eradicate the Slavs in Siberia, which the Slavic people of Siberia didn't particularly care for. Yep. Well, and, and Rasputin well, had another motivation: is he was living the type of life he very much wanted to live, which required his patrons to stay in power. And he saw the writing on the wall. And if the base populace got desperate, the monarchy loses its power. Yeah. And he doesn't get to have a government sponsored fuck party anymore best case scenario you are running for your life yes worst yeah. case scenario well, you're dead which well, he was the, pretty the, on the ball about yeah if you pl- if you apply to the modern day look at the united states right now As do i have to in, <laughs> particularly in flyover country mm-hmm. um I, you know i think back to i think back to 9-11 when you have a um when you have an outside combatant an outside enemy saying we're going to run you over from New York City to California. There isn't blue. There isn't red. There's yep. going to be a whole lot of people between here and San Francisco that are going to stand up and well, I just the remember, hell you are. I just remember how hyped everyone was when we invaded Afghanistan in 2001. Right. Everybody was so excited to go to war against somebody we saw as an existential threat. Because we were taking the fight to them. Right. And this is exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. Right. I, 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 I do want a quick clarifying point, just because we'll, we'll get those mean tweets and emails. Serfdom was very much a thing in Russia, it, but it did look a bit differently than it did in the Western version of it. It's, but, it, it European serfdom is yes, what I, yeah, I'm comparing yeah. it to. And it, it was nothing But there like was a, there was a form of indentured servitude in Russia, and there was slavery up until the 1700s. Not, in, yeah. not where I am... Not, I'm, as I'm talking but, about, like Siberian but provinces, Siberia being an exception. That's, I'm yeah. using Siberia that. Maybe I wasn't clear enough on that one. But it's but also yeah, they, they it, were they were peasants, but they were simply poor. Yes, yeah, yeah. They they were not indentured. They were not owned. But you're also living in a state where if you are a if you are meant to be conscripted, once war starts and the declaration goes out and you refuse to go, the police are going to come into house town and burn your house down for mm-hmm. not going. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of motivations for people to, to go. And another. Another reason why there was likely a little bit of hesitation on the, the part of the, the Tsar and Tsarina is that Alexandra and the Kaiser are cousins. Yeah. She refers to him pre-war as Cousin Willie. Like, that's yeah. that was... Cousin Willie. Because cousin Kaiser w- Wilhelm, they Willie were and Nikki. first cousins. Yeah. Like Willie, they, Nikki, and Georgie. Yeah. Cousin Willie with the uh, big gold butt plug on the top of his hat. <laughs> it was a, it you was better a, not. The thing is awfully sharp, Padre. You better be careful, man. Yeah. I don't know what you get into, I mean, but like, just be careful. Okay? Everything can be if you're brave enough. Right. I don't know. I don't know everything can be once. Yeah. It was a very silly film, but uh, The King's Man, which came out last year, does a pretty good job of showing just how interconnected all those people were. Yeah. And obviously, it's it's super fictionalized version. Alexandra was born in Germany. Yeah. Yeah. She was German. <laughs> she was there German. Are, she barely which, spoke Russian. And that was Vic. That was Vicky's granddaughter. Duma, yeah. uh, at least a couple people on the Duma said all the time. <laughs> like, there's a lot of. 
political cartoons yeah. about it of the era. They're, they're, <laughs> and, and they're expecting essentially the first lady of the country to be a fifth columnist of some sort, which <laughs> I I kind of think is very, very funny. So Rasputin made his opposition known to Nicholas and Alexandra and tried to tell them that there would be untold suffering in Russia and their position would be weaker for it, even if Russia won the war. Now, Nicholas was unmoved, convinced that he was next to God, and then, as such, God would allow him victory. And he was only able to see the short-term gains for himself rather than considering the long-term consequences and clearly hadn't learned from the disaster that was the Russian defeat at Japanese hands less than a decade earlier. Even so, things seemed to kick off all right for the Russian military. The Ottomans weren't yet in a fight, so nobody was coming over the Caucasus. And the Austro-Hungarians had their hands full trying to deal with a failed invasion of Serbia and a, and a mobilization that can be neatly filed under clusterfuck. And less than 20% of the German army was on their eastern front facing Russia, and everybody's navy was blockaded in by the massive British fleet. Now, most of the Germans were on the western front due to something called the Schlieffen Plan, which counted on a slow Russian mobilization, allowing for a massive German attack through Belgium into France, capturing Paris, knocking the French Empire, and probably the British too, out of the war, and allowing the Germans to then focus on shifting their forces east to handle the Russians once they got their forces into the field. However, two things went wrong there. First, nobody was prepared for how rapidly the Russians had their shit together with their mobilization, and the Russians were able to launch a massive attack in, into Germany's Prussia, what's now the western half of Poland, and against the Austro-Hungarians, and to put a blocking force in the south in case the Ottomans got spicy ideas. Secondly, the fighting in Belgium and France devolved into nothing short of mass slaughter. Courage and Flash were no match for industrialized death as massed forces slammed into each other in open field maneuver warfare, machine guns and massed artillery taking a lethal toll against men using tactics that were outdated by the time of the U.S. Civil War more than half a century earlier. Over 500,000 men died in the Western theater in the first month of hostilities. This isn't 500,000 casualties. This is 500,000 dead in a month in one part of the war. When puni while punishing for the French, Belgians, and Brits, this did, however, slow down the German plan and push their and left their eastern front open to the Russian advance. Now, things went well at first, with the Russians taking quite a lot of German and Austro-Hungarian territory, prompting fears that Berlin itself would fall to the Russians, but the success didn't last long. Russian supply lines were quickly stretched, and soon, at the Battle of Tannenberg on the 26th through the 30th of August 1914, a Russian field army of a quarter million men was surrounded and destroyed by a German force half their size, followed soon by a repeat with another Russian field army wiped out two weeks later. Soon, the Russian offensive against the Austro-Hungarians also ground to a halt, and losses began to pile up. By the end of 1914, while on the Western Front, forces were digging in and forming the lines of trenches that we usually picture when we think of World War I, the Eastern Front was still open field warfare with the added bonus of having to winter on the icy plains and mountains of northeastern Europe. Things weren't over by Christmas. As a matter of fact, by Christmas, the Russians had lost over 1.2 million men dead to combat, disease, and desertion. And things didn't get much better in spring of 1915. The Austro-Hungarians and Germans launched a joint offensive along the entire front, and the Russians, through a lack of supplies and incompetent generalship, lost all the gains they'd made the previous year and a lot of Russian territory to the tune of another million casualties. Now, I'm not going to get into the entire back and forth of the Russian side of the war, but I bring this offensive up because it's important for one particular reason. Nicholas knew he had a problem with his military leadership. He knew things were going badly for Russia because he could read a map and read a report, and he knew that it was mostly down to General Prince so-and-so not having the battle acumen to carry out a tactical plan or 
General Prince so-and-so not being able to even launch an operation because General Prince so-and-so spent months skimming off of his men's supplies to sell them and make some extra funny money. But Nicholas wouldn't sack General Prince so-and-so because he felt he needed their support and decided instead that what was needed was a little more royal presence closer to the front. So, saying goodbye to his beloved wife and children and placing far too much trust in Alexandra's abilities to handle matters of state in St. Petersburg and his own ability to handle them from afar, Nicholas decided, after apparently receiving a message directly from God, that he decided to put down stakes in the rear areas of the front and assume direct command of all Russian military forces. He was, he was in the cathedral in St. Petersburg and he said he was looking at, at the, the mural on the wall behind the altar at, at the picture of Christ. And that's when he heard it. Yep. Now, instead of appointing somebody with direct government experience, or direct... Nicholas instead went with somebody who knew he could trust, at least on a personal level. This was a big mistake. He chose Alexandra, his wife. He knew he could trust her. She also had no practical experience at governance or handling any matters of state. Now, Nicholas also had a lot of honorary ranks. All of European male royalty tended to, but they were just that, honorary. He had very little actual direct military experience and no combat experience, whether in the field or with command and control, he doesn't really know the intricacies of logistics or communications. He has no idea what the fuck he's doing, but because he's the czar, nobody tells him no. So while Nicholas is out in the field, even though he'd been, even though he'd been banished from court while Nicholas was back in St. Petersburg for his little adventure at Yar, Rasputin managed to make his way back into court because Alexandra had sent a letter inviting him back in her husband's absence. Now she told Nicholas about this because it was always easier to seek forgiveness than permission, stating that if he was going to be away and she was making all these decisions of state, then she needed Rasputin there. And Nicholas pushed back, basically telling her, this is going to be bad press, just keep talking to him via telegram, but it's a bad idea to have him Saint Peter in St. Petersburg with you. I forbid it. And she pushed back, telling him again, if you're not going to be here, I need him for his advice and his solace and for our son. And Nicholas fires back with, hey, you know what? Okay. <laughs> And so, after being banished for the Yar incident, Rasputin was back in St. Petersburg, and his being back around in the Tsarina after being banished by her husband, now that said husband was off at the front, had exactly the effect in the tabloids that you would expect. Young Alexei's hemophilia is still a secret, nobody knows why this guy is being kept around, and he's throwing his political weight around more than, now more than ever. And so the press hostility and the hostility from the aristocracy just keep growing, and so do the rumors. Now, it's not just a whispered little smear campaign that has him sleeping with the Empress. It's now the popular zeitgeist mm -hmm. that is saying it. And here, and her, and the Empress's behavior with Rasputin became somewhat strange. Maybe due to the stress of having the man she loved away running a war. Maybe just because of the stress of having to run matters of state. She started to send the Tsar little Rasputin relics, along with instructions for him and their use. She would send him Rasputin's greasy comb with notes instructing Nicholas that he should run it through his hair or through his mustache before making big decisions. And she would send him hairs from Rasputin's head or beard that she instructed what Nicholas... What are these tiny little ones? <laughs> <laughs> the, They're so would, curly. <laughs> and she would instruct Nicholas to tie these hairs around his hands during prayers or to steep them in water, which he should then drink. 
This poor bastard is like, ooh, sexy passage yeah. from my wife back home. What could it? Yeah. God damn it, Rasputin Pinter. Okay, so I get it. I twist, I twist the long ones. It's the little tiny ones I put in the water. Right? <laughs> she would send Rasputin, she would send Nicholas crusts from Rasputin's leftover bread, calling them in her letters Rasputin rusks, instructing her to eat these crusts alongside his sacrament so as to ensure the safety and victory of the Russian people. I think he does. Have you seen his teeth? It's, I mean, like, this wasn't that long ago. No, this (laughs) is a little over 100 years ago. Right. I mean, this shows that she's a true believer. She's sending him mystic croutons in the post. (laughs) Or the stress broke her. uh, Well, I think it might be a little bit of both. Hey, we got a package from home. What'd you get? I got chocolate. And what did you get? I got a half-eaten sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> I got I got back hair and crust. <laughs> from wait, half-eaten from your 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 wife? That's kind of cute. No, no, uh, my buddy Greg. <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole thing. Hey, it kinda, I don't want to go into it. It kind of works for me. I don't know. I got to go make some tea. I don't like this tea. <laughs> Can you? <laughs> do, do, do me a favor. I'll take the front this time. <laughs> so all of this stuff leaked to the newspapers because somebody within her household was sending them the information, trying their level best to get Rasputin the fuck out of the royal household. Now, needless to say, anything really that Rasputin did, Nicholas basically treated with an attitude of, yeah, whatever, go ahead, because he had much bigger fish to fry in front of him trying to run a world war. But it's one thing if it's regarding crusts of Rasputin's bread it's another when she, you have your wife making political firings and appointments with Rasputin as her guiding, deciding force. Now, either way... And there is a lot of yeah. turnover. Mm-hmm. Like she, she's very busy. Well, I, I guess we should say he yeah. is very busy at this time. Now, but either, it's anybody who speaks ill of Rasputin, she replaces. Oh, yeah. And they call it the great replacement. Like it's, there are so many firings during this time. Just because somebody's talking shit on the guy she's mailing hair from. <laughs> because of her, her magic horned wizard. <laughs> Grigori, you, you going to finish that? No, I'm making a care package for Nikki. Yeah. So, Send it over to yeah. Nick. So either way, Nicholas's president presence at the front had nothing if not a deleterious effect on the Russian war effort. Bad generals were even less likely to be relieved of command because if something went wrong, Nicholas tended to blame himself. And everybody else tended to blame him as well. And good officers often had their ability to do their jobs hamstrung because every decision had to be sent up the chain to the sovereign and nothing could be done without his direct approval. Now good initiative was at a premium in the Russian military in World War I, and with Nick in the field it disappeared completely. Not everything went wrong. Russian soldiers finally got into the habit of digging trench lines, which, although they create a hellish fighting battle space to to go up against, they are good at stopping people from being hit by metal moving at a very high velocity. Now, in spring of 1916, Nicholas even managed to help put together an effective offensive, which made a significant amount of gains before eventually running out of steam, but the name for that was given to the general who had all the practical leadership. So Nicholas spent his time on the front getting all of the credit for the bad things that happened and none of the credit for the good things. And hair. And dude. <laughs> but it's like a Can box. Just, it's not like a yeah. couple hairs. It's just like it's just a crate. Like, God damn it! It's like the sweepings from a barber shop floor. It's just, except it's all just from one, one guy. Dude. So, however, it would all be for naught eventually. And we'll discuss in the next episode what the end of Russia's war meant for the country and for the Romanovs. But what we can be sure of here is that Nick's presence on the front didn't make things better on the battlefield and definitely made things worse at home. He actually, for a time, 
even Nicholas saw that what he was doing wasn't working, yeah. and uh, he gave most of his control to his cousin. So that was mostly done by Nikolashka, and Nikolashka, his cousin, looked a lot more like his grandfather, mm-hmm. who we talked about was a hulking man who used to just tear decks of cards in half just because he thought it was hilarious. Well, or did, his legs. Did, yeah, I was going to say, did yeah. he? Did, but Nikolashka was legs? also, I mean, he was that, like, he was in the military. He was definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely the man for the job. Well, he was assistant defense minister. Correct. Too, but yeah, but like after, instead of, <laughs> because Nicholas got the gig, mm-hmm. uh, Nikolashka did not, uh, stayed on in a military yeah. role. And, but and, it's also Nikolashka who set up the Brusilov offensive more than Nicholas did. Why am I picturing Jason Isaacs in the death of Stalin? <laughs> you're not, <laughs> you're not too far off. <laughs> you're not wrong. But, yeah. but the thing about Nikolashka was he was a fucking weirdo. And he had this thing, like, anytime somebody wanted to get on his good side, they would buy him a sword. Yep. <laughs> because, like, this guy really likes swords. The dude loved swords. But he would test the sharpness of his sword by cutting one of his dogs in half. Oh. Every time he received, and people gave him swords all the time because he loved swords. Vinny, you're a must. Yeah, dear. He would <laughs> test the sharpness by cutting one of his own dogs, not just... An animal, because I, I mean, even like the Japanese used to use hogs, or yeah. in some cases, prisoners, but never pets. He would select one of his pets and cut it in half. They had a different relationship with pets than we do. And his his two closest friends, the Crow Sisters. Yeah, yeah. Nikolashka was a weird dude. Yeah, the Crow Sisters that we talked about before. Those yeah. were those were his two like confidants. <laughs> and I don't know the extent of their relationship, but I can probably ballpark it. Yeah. Well, although they definitely were like a little happy goth family, mm-hmm. different kinds of goths, right? So, yeah, you have you have two little Wednesdays, and then you have General Pugsley, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's very funny. So, what we can say is that Nicholas helped to spearhead an effort that would lead to disastrous losses. That though they would pale in comparison to those seen in the next World War, were unheard of up to this point. By the end of their involvement in the war, of the total military deaths of some ten point one million men of all combatant powers. Almost 3.5 million of those lost, more than a third, would be Russian. However, not everything going wrong was just with Russia and her military in the Great War. Things on the home front for Rasputin had taken a truly sour turn the very same day that things kicked off after the death of Franz Ferdinand. Now, we've stepped out of the timeline a little bit in the first half of the episode to tell some stories that fit the theme of that part of of our episode. And we're going to do so again because we've encountered something of a turning point here. Now, Rasputin had just returned to Prokofskoya for one of his frequent visits on the 29th of June, 1914, and had just finished having lunch with his family when he noticed the postman coming past and ran after him to deliver a telegram to a famous photographer for him to take to the telegraph office. The letter was from the the photographer saying, can I come and take pictures of you and your family? Mm -hmm. And he wanted to ensure that that got there, so he ran out after the guy. Yep. As he headed out of the gate, little did he know... The woman with no nose was lurking. As he walked towards the postman with the message, a veiled woman approached from his left. Assuming her to simply be a beggar, he reached in his pocket for some coins when there was a flash of metal and the woman lashed out with a 15-inch dagger and stabbed Rasputin once in the stomach. Now Rasputin took off after his assailant, screaming over and over again, I've been stabbed! I've been stabbed! I'm hurt! I'm hurt! And he, I mean... He was hurt. I mean, he hurt. was hurt, yeah. Yeah. He wasn't wrong. Yeah. While at the same time, Rasputin's wife, Brascovia, ran after both of them, shrieking, She stabbed him! She stabbed him! He's hurt! He's hurt! 
Now, after Rasputin picked up a stick and bashed the woman in the side of the head with it, the woman then wheeled on Rasputin and leapt on the bleeding mystic to stab him again, but a mob of onlookers pulled her off of him and wrestled the knife away, a lot of them getting shots of their own in for good measure. Now, picking her up and carrying her bodily to the local administration building, they threw her in the one jail cell, and when police pulled her veil off, they recoiled as they saw, quote, an irregularly shaped hole where her nose should have been. Now, the woman's name was Kionya. In, in the meantime, the second, uh, the second knife's woman on the grassy knoll got away. <laughs> it was the Teamsters. Yeah. <laughs> it was the Cubans. So, the woman's name was Kionya Guseva, 33 years of age, a seamstress, and as all of our sources seem to need to note, single and apparently with large, powerful hands. Because, I mean, you'd think even amongst the Russian peasants, there would be one dude who'd be like, eh, she doesn't need a nose. I'll, I'll marry her, yeah. You know. But she got man hands. <laughs> that was the deal breaker. She, she confessed immediately to the stabbing, calling Rasputin, quote, a false prophet, slanderer, a violator of women, mm. and a seducer of honest maidens. Mm. I mean, she called him the Antichrist. Yeah, she called him the Antichrist. <laughs> it's... That's now, quite it. Well, that might be. <laughs> she that she might told be, that to the newspapers. Yeah, that might be hyperbole. The rest of it, it's kind of brand. Right. Yeah. <laughs> now, this quote leads a lot of people to believe that a she wanted to kill Rasputin in return for some sexual offense, and that that sexual offense was b sleeping with her and giving her syphilis. syphilis. Yeah. Now, this theory rests on the fact that many people assumed her lack of nose and poor mental state to be due to advanced stage syphilis, but a further examination of Guseva's past found that her nose was actually missing because when she was a teenager, she was suffering from a sinus infection, and the local doctor, a renowned drunk, was meant to inject medicine into her nose and instead mixed up and injected her with acid, oh, destroying God. her yeah. nasal tissue. Mm. Her actual motive was not sexual, at least not directly. She had been a follower of our old friend Iliodor. Being from the city of Saritsyn, where Iliodor had set up a religious shop for some time after his falling out with the Orthodox Church. Saritsyn, out of interest, was later named after the revolution to Stalingrad. Now, there, she became intensely aware of Iliodor's hatred of Rasputin, and the final straw had been the publishing of an article called Iliodor and Grishka in the newspaper Light that covered their ongoing feud, and she decided to take up a dagger and act, as she said, as the prophet Elijah, who had used a knife to kill 450 false prophets of the Canaanite gods, according to 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 40. Now, Guseva went on trial a few months later, and she was found not guilty by reason of insanity, but she was still placed in an asylum as a result. She was, however, released on March of 1917 by the provisional government that took over, more on that next time, who basically went, you know what? It is Rasputin she tried to kill, so... Let's, let, let bygones be bygones. She's cool. Yeah, she's cool. Now, she would go on in 1919 to attempt to assassinate the Bishop of Moscow, and although she was arrested for that, no further record of her exists after that arrest, and I think I know why. Mm -hmm. I think because instead of dealing with a trial, they just took her out back behind the shed and just mm. put one behind her ear. Would that they, have been too early for Libby to borrow? Uh... La Frente Beria, yeah. uh, he came along in the mid-20s. So, yeah, yeah he wouldn't have been in charge of that. Earlier, yeah. Yeah. So the myth-making didn't end with Guseva's motives. Another story about the event claimed that even having been stabbed, Rasputin took pity on the woman and kept the mob and Prokovskoya from stringing her up on the spot because before he, you know, passed out because he was bleeding into his own abdomen. 
This it almost certainly never happened. As Rasputin tended to carry a hell of a grudge with him for the rest of his days against this woman, constantly referring to her as, quote, the slut who stuck a knife up my ass. <laughs> now, it's highly unlikely that Iliador actually put her up to this in any way, and that she was merely an admirer of his who had a little moment and tried to kill the most famous holy man in Russia. But, though Iliador likely wasn't actually guilty, he sure fucking acted like he was. Now, Iliador heard about the incident and then shaved off his mustache and beard, caked himself in makeup to make him look, so, make him look like a pretty lady, and then fled the monastery he was living in the middle of the night. Why do we keep coming back to this every... Once in a while. They always have this they, Bugs Bunny they, moment. Yeah, there's always, yeah. yeah. It, there has to be a success rate, right? I'm thinking, I mean, it has to have worked at least once. Well, speaking of success, Iliador traveled to St. Petersburg, still in drag, to give an interview to a newspaper and take some photographs, which sadly appear to be, have been lost to history. And I looked. I tried to find these. They might be out there, but I haven't found them. Mm. Now, he fled to Norway played himself in a silent film about the Russian Revolution, and after an abortive attempt to become Vladimir Lenin's personal religious advisor, uh, we might have to do an extra ration just on that whole thing, and how he managed to get out of that alive, he moved to New York, where he worked in his later years as a janitor in the old MetLife building on Madison Avenue. And a street, and a seamstress. Until he died in 1952. (laughs) He died in 1952. Well, we're going to, in the next episode, we're going to talk about just how modern some of this stuff was. Anyway, back to Rasputin. Rasputin was carried back to his family home, where his wound was bandaged by a local medical orderly, and he lay on the bed writhing in pain in and out of consciousness. The gut wound now is often treatable, but in 1914, a gut wound from a big-ass knife was bad fucking news. And... And one of the bigger problems here is that after he was slashed across the abdomen, he gave chase. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he was holding his intestines in mm-hmm. while he was running. Yeah. That's, that's, he didn't just get a little cut. She opened, she him, opened him up. Yeah. Almost entirely disemboweled him. Yeah. He held his intestines in, which <clears throat> knotted most of his intestines. Yeah. <laughs> Still, he was alive. They tend a, to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Still, he was alive, and a surgeon was sent for from the closest city that had one, and the surgeon raced down the road in his carriage and arrived early the next morning to Rasputin, still hanging on, but not in great shape. Now, knowing that moving him and transporting him to the closest hospital would likely kill him, the surgeon made the decision to operate in this dark room in in this Siberian backwater, bacteria be damned. The wound was serious, but it could have been worse. The only organ it did manage to damage was the small intestine, but it was punctured, ripped, and, as you said, knotted in several places. Rasputin, overnight, just laying there, bleeding, thinking about it. Now, Rasputin had to have several inches of his small intestine removed, and the doctor managed to attach two disparate pieces and suture the other nicks and cuts and untangle the knots before dressing the wound with antiseptics and medicated gauze. Were they able to knock him out for this? Uh, they gave him chloroform. Okay. Yeah, there, there's, some, there's some stories that say that he refused anesthesia. That is not I true. I don't believe that for no. a fucking second. No. I mean, at that point, he would just have been so he out of it. He would have passed well, yeah, out. He, yeah. was, he was out of it, and they gave him chloroform to make sure he stayed out Yeah, of it. could you just imagine? Oh, my God. Because that's not a situation where you want the patient to wake up and start thrashing. Right. right. And this is also, again, during a, a part of history where we know what makes your wounds fester. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, well, everybody is abundantly clear that this is not a good situation. Yeah. I, mean, I understand the man... Uniquely sensitive to yeah. it. 
bacteria. And I, I understand we're also at a part of history where a surgeon arrived by horse. Yeah. But, like, good God. And I, I it have was to in ask 1914. Here. It was 108 yeah. years ago. It's not that long. We, the Wright brothers were flying around. Yeah. <laughs> like we had, we had airplanes we, we were on only, the battlefield. This is two years after the Titanic sank. Right. <laughs> we were only one generation away from the cure for polio. Yes. Yeah. And the atomic bomb. Right. The fax machine existed. We're 14 years from <laughs> penicillin. Right. Yeah. I, I, okay, so there's something I want to bring up very quickly. I know there's always a moment where a lot of us tend to jive with the subject we're talking about. We had this moment of kin, of like kinship. Kyle, is this it for you? Sure, it's not the sex it's, cult. It's the gut surgery. I see, it's, I see it's where the we're missing at. several inches of your digestive tract. Yeah, uh, including small intestines. Uh, so as I've mentioned many times before, I have Crohn's disease. Uh, I would say seven years ago, I had a resection that took eh, about a foot and a half in total from small yep. and large. God, um, that's way more than I thought. Oh, yeah. No, it's a... Uh, so, and this was... <laughs> 2015 by a very very talented team of surgeons not on a kitchen table in a dank uh russian hovel <laughs> almost uh, 100 years to the day that recovery yeah, yeah no seriously wow uh that recovery took over a month in the hospital mm-hmm. another month of no mobility uh even with an excellent surgeon one of the suture points a week after my initial discharge collapsed in on itself, full block, had to go back in. Uh, my system will never be normal. Uh, it's pretty damn good, and the disease has been in full remission ever since. Yeah. But uh, no, it's a horrific surgery even today. Yeah. Uh, and that surgery was performed beginning to end yep. by a professional. His started by an amateur. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a team of professionals at yeah. a very good... A medical facility yeah uh and i'm you know i still have da- like my i still have the scar tissue i i mean obviously my system's always going to act differently because of the the the, the length being shortened every uh, fart's a danger fart as you like to say <laughs> yes <laughs> but i'm i'm not in constant pain yeah where there's mm. no i mean his he must have been well at no point in this surgery miserable. did anybody give you your last rights which is exactly mm. what happened to Rasputin. i did sign a whole bunch of paperwork that says you might die but no there were no last yeah, rights. It's, abdominal it's, surgery uh, is a lot, of, a lot of bleeding i'll, yeah, I'll tell you the first purposes. thing i checked for when i woke up was whether i had a bag or not because it was one of those yeah. uh yeah you shouldn't yeah. need one but if something goes real sideways yeah, if this uh, thing goes pear-shaped good you know Good luck. But, uh, and just to be fair, those are way better than they ever used to be. But Correct. the goal was still, let's not do that. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, he must have been in constant pain the rest of his life. Well, we're getting to that, yeah. It's, it's, it, he was given his last rites, but he held on through the first day post-surgery. And his condition, although rough, had stabilized enough for him to be moved. Now, he was placed on a steamer and sent upriver to the city of Tayumen and placed at the hospital there. And the royal surgeon was sent down by the czar to oversee his recovery which took a 49-day hospital stay while he recovered. Things were not totally fine after his rest and recuperation, though. Rasputin would spend the rest of his life dealing with digestive issues and near-crippling stomach pains, which he would deal with by drinking. Now, the news was around Russia the day after the attack, and the majority of newspapers and journals reported that Rasputin had almost instantly died. There were newspapers in New York that, that announced his death. Now, many of Rasputin's aristocratic fan club were shocked and appalled at the attempted murder, and letters of support flowed from them, as indicated by one letter here to Rasputin from a Russian baroness. Quote, Dear, dear Gregory Efimovich, This is my first letter after that terrible villainy that undid my soul and forced me to become even more convinced that you 
Like the sun, lighten our lives and dispel the gloom that comes from the, from the mere thought that you could be taken from us. That gloom began to encroach on us from all corners, and the light grew dim. But you, praise be to God, are alive. You are with us, and this is such a joy that one must thank all day and night God and the Virgin Mary. She protected you and knew that a blow against you would, was being prepared. Of course, complete joy is not possible. We must somehow earn our joy just to know that you are alive. I am gladly ready to kiss each word of yours so long as it comes from you, yet it pains me to the point of tears that you do not believe me. But this I never expected. I was so furious at those who dared to raise a hand against you that I could not understand how you could call them my friends. Your friends are my friends and your enemies are my enemies. You know this, and if there is another feeling in me, then it belongs to you, but I give you my word never to write to any of your known enemies where you are, how you are feeling, what you are doing, and shall never even mention your name should it bring you the least possible harm. It is, a, if it is, <clears throat> is it at all possible that I, who love you so much, could cause you the least harm? All I do is ask God to instruct me on how to help you, how to serve, and how to show you everything I feel. You will always mean more to me than everyone, and I shall tell no one when you visit us. I prayed today, and I am wearing your portrait in an open locket. I put it on the day before the atrocity. I kiss your hands and ask for your blessings. Your friend, Iliador. No, that, I made that last part up. <laughs> <clears throat> However, this while that quote indicates that there is still some support for him, that he still has a major fan club within the aristocracy, among the wider public, the reaction is somewhat more mixed. There were celebrations in the streets of St. Petersburg in the week of the attack before wider word got out that Rasputin had survived both the stabbing and the surgery. People were dancing in the streets when they found out when they thought he was dead. Did you hear they stabbed Greg? Yeah! Fuck yeah! They fucking got Greg! They got Greg! Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. <laughs> it's Greg got murked. Yeah. This would be premature, but indicative. A sign that Rasputin's death was something that people were beginning to yearn for. It was a sign that things were starting to turn for Grigory Rasputin. His life had been charmed until Guseva had slipped her blade into his stomach, but this event would show that that charm was indeed wearing off. And there were many forces at work that would be hell-bent on bringing about the downfall of the Mad Monk, and this would not be the last threat to his life or the last plot to end it. The downfall was coming, and not just for Grigory Yefimovich Rasputin. But that will be discussed in our final episode next time in Rasputin Part 6. So the one thing that the attempt on his life did, the one thing that, I mean, the fact that he had survived after being read his last rites mm -hmm. and newspapers around the world saying that he was dead, now yeah, he read dozens of his own obituaries. Now he not has, all of them were complimentary. I know. Now he has the added benefit of maybe the greatest like mystique mm -hmm. of of anything that comes along with Rasputin, and it's he can't die. Yeah, and everyone knows it. Now. That's the most. That's now really his interesting point enemies too. Know it that even this thing that happens to him. Adds to his legend, she his sunk, living legend. She his, sunk a knife in him so deep it almost came out the back. Yeah, and he held his guts in and gave chase, and then whacked her with a stick. Yeah. Right. Well, and that's oh. he he pulled his guts back in and beat the shit out of a, a would be assassin. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was good of the it, it was good of the people around him to uh, to stop him from strangling her with her own intestinal. Track, but I mean, because that was he was doing a little too much damage with that, but. <laughs> 
<laughs> was it? Bam, didn't bam, that happen bam, bam. In, a, in a Richard Rodriguez movie? Like, yeah. didn't somebody like it, Robert not, Rodriguez? Not, or Robert Rodriguez. I'm sorry, that's the the ex pitcher for the Pirates. <laughs> uh, Robert um, Rodriguez. Um, didn't because not Machete because I know a Machete like maybe a Planet Terror. Was, I think it, it Planet. Yeah, it was some, one of does, the Grindhouse movies. Yeah, doesn't somebody yeah. kill someone with their own insides? Which I is think very so. funny. Because I know a Machete. I think it's. I believe it's in Machete Kills. Whenever he. Uh, Descends the building. He rappels down a building with a guy's small intestine, <laughs> yes. which is very, very funny. That must have been a shitty job. <laughs> small intestine. Small intestine. Small intestine. He's actually really. I mean, that's a decent point. Had she gotten the large intestines, he would have died of infection that night. Oh yeah. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. Or the gut, for that matter. Right. Gut, um, bladder. Uh, she oh. she came very very close to a lot of organs besides his small intestine, and managed not to hit any of them. Yeah, and it and the. the the thing is, it wasn't a slash. It was a plunge. Yeah. And then she pulled the knife out. And because it's a 15-inch dagger. Oh, have you seen pictures of it? It is a white bone handle. Like yeah, a bone. I'm not sure what kind of critter it came from. But it's, I mean, it is a pure white bone. And it is a long, mean piece of metal. Yeah. It's a vicious-looking weapon. Well, going back to what, the things that he had been referred to, in um, the one excerpt that we, we where I, I said uh, Antichrist might be hyperbole, but the rest. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. now wait a second. In Revelation, one of the things that happens to the Antichrist is he is stabbed he is, and comes back from the dead. He is bisected. Yeah. Now, <laughs> here we are with this guy. <laughs> it's reported that he dies by stabbing, and he comes back. And we've gone over this with and the now, second Russian squadron. And now he only and, wears black clothes. Right. <laughs> so now... And the, in the, what we talk about... How many times do we talk about the uh, early 20th century Russians, even today? Uh, they are a superstitious, kind of skittish people. Yeah. So here's this guy living up to a biblical prophecy. Can you imagine the first day you walked out of the hospital? Everybody's just like, Whoa! Oh, shit. He just comes back like a goddamn vodka-fueled Darth Vader. <laughs> <laughs> no. It, no. no! It was like uh, whenever Nikki Six died, and then like, and he came back. Like they, He was dead for like eight minutes, and they whacked him with adrenaline into his heart. And yeah. it was the second shot of adrenaline that got him whenever he finally cleaned it, because he overdosed on heroin. Surprise, surprise. It was a rock star in the That's 80s. Shocked. When he walked out of the hospital... There were two girls holding a vigil for him, and he asked them for a ride home. <laughs> so they just did. They just yeah. drove him back. It was like, oh, by the way, Merry Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's I, interesting got, because I'm betting they gave him blowies. Uh, at that point, he said that that was completely off the table. Yeah. He, just uh, having had been dead, he just wasn't quite feeling up to it. I'm sure that they wouldn't have said no. As they were having a little a, impact on the libido, a tearful vigil for their favorite bassist. Uh, yeah, but he just walked out of the hospital. He was like, "What are you doing?" They're like, it's they're, they're holding their yeah. like pictures of Nikki Six and prayer candles. Like, what are you guys doing? But it's interesting <laughs> you bring this up, Padre, and, 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 and Chris, because what we see with this, all of this happening, is as we kind of said, it increases not only the kind of the mythology that we have to sift through as we look at it from a historical perspective, but it increases Rasputin's mythology in his own time. Right, he's right. creating his own current. Myth and it's and this a monster woman yeah. cut him in half and he was fine. A woman with half a face, right, stabbed him and he walked away essentially. And it's 
and like and he After tried to he stop her from being lynched. Her. Yeah. It's just that does so many I things. I still for wouldn't his, put it past I, I still wouldn't put it past the idea that he asked her to do butt stuff and she said no. <laughs> it's I don't know. Hell hath no fury like a man scorned? I don't know. How oh, come on. Works. Okay. Yeah. Big no, wonder. Uh, no, Big no, wonder no. she said no. The man had a legendary. Method. Yeah, did you see that thing? She mm. might have been down. Okay, she, I'm not going to say he might <laughs> done. A, he might have done a try to sell their trespass. It might. She <laughs> might have needed the same doctor he had. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> True. <laughs> Put her intestines back together. <laughs> okay, I'm not getting into the weeds on this one. I'm going to ask you. I mean, Chris, is that so better or worse than suggesting the nose? <laughs> oh. No. Oh. oh, come on. <laughs> We're so, the line, and the Kyle just walked up and tackled the three of us over. <laughs> I'm not here to king shame. I just okay, Chris. I'm Chris. I'm getting us out of this skid. Can you please tell people where they can find skid. us online? <laughs> uh, if you have any concerns, <laughs> comments, uh, any any suggestions, uh, any praise you would like to heap upon us, please email us at trrpod at gmail.com. Check your check the email. I got some things I might want to say about Kyle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's it's completely anonymous, uh, except for the email address that has your name address on it. And, yeah. uh, uh, you can follow us on Twitter at PodcastTR, which it just uh, told me today is our four-year Twitter anniversary, yeah. friends. So, can, you know, happy nice. anniversary, everybody. You also uh, know it's me because the email comes from Kyle Graper is a monster at gmail.com. <laughs> IH8Kyle <laughs> at Hotmail. And you all were giving me shit about giving him shit about his haircut. <laughs> <laughs> and you can follow he us just keeps Instagram. going deeper. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram at trrpod, or you can join the crew at Patreon.com/trrpod. And also, uh, I know Keith isn't here, but we still want to kind of pimp his uh, him his little passion project. Three, you can find Thrifty Whiskey on YouTube by going on YouTube and searching for Thrifty Whiskey. You can also find them on Instagram and on Twitter at Thrifty Whiskey. So, the next one, the finale. It should, in theory, be our penultimate episode here. Yeah. Of Rasputin. We're not of, going of Rasputin. Of Rasputin. We're the podcast will continue after this is done. We have many, many more, more stories left to tell. But this well, is going to be... Well, it depends if Keith gives us all the Rona. I mean, yeah. We know. Well, this is going to be our final main story, main section of the story of Grigori Rasputin. We are finally coming to the downfall. Now, that's not going to be the end of us talking about Rasputin because it's also going to be followed by all of us sitting down and having a bit of an analytical roundtable. Now, this is the kind of stuff we normally put on our Patreon and you can find by becoming a Patreon member for the podcast. But I think this one, because it was such a big thing, I think we're going to release this to the wider audience, correct? Correct. And so you can also have that to look forward to. And we are looking forward to telling you that story. And so we are going to see you next time. And just wait. And I know what's coming. <laughs> I made it through another one, guys. Kyle still has the whiteboard sitting in front of him. How, just how clean is that whiteboard, big, Kyle? It's how clean is it? It's clean yet tainted, just like the intestinal tract of Rasputin. <laughs> I just, I, it, oh, I'm in fear now. This is hanging over. Micah's hanging over me like a Damocles horsecock joke. Yeah. We're going to have to have two different cuts of the next episode because they'll probably deplatform. Release the Snyder cut. Release the Snyder cut. <laughs> so we all have that. To now, this isn't going to be the Snyder cut. This is going to be uh, the, the movie Cats with Buttholes, <laughs> <laughs> which is the greatest thing ever, ever done to cats. It can't possibly be worse than the movie Cats that was released. Uh, I just, I, 
If uh, no, it's the so same. Went, it's the same movie, but just with but, buttholes. But adding buttholes has to make it superior. Like it you is. can't make it any worse. <laughs> I don't know. Anytime you get a, anytime there's a James Corden vehicle, oh, sign God. me up. Oh, well, now, <laughs> oh, he just loves his singing and dancing. Now I just thought of James Corden butthole. And I'm just, I'm <laughs> okay, we're done. we're done. We're done. No, hold fast. Hold fast. Red. I'm safe wording out. Hold fast. Goodbye. <laughs>